That's Ayla Brooke and the Soundman from their album Desolation Sounds on Fallen Tree Records. Ryan Jesperson here with you on this Monday morning. It's July 26th and welcome to Real Talk. I, I, I saw a tweet like two seconds, literally two seconds before I put my headphones on. I want to read it. This is from a guy, Pat J. Wu. I follow him. Encourage you to as well. He says, I've been thinking a lot about my relationship with Twitter lately. I feel like this pandemic, the misinformation, the anti-science rhetoric and the politicking have made me much more frustrated, upset, impatient and uncompassionate toward others. I don't like that this website forces people into circles who always agree with each other. Quick hits over nuance, snark over respect says I'm equally guilty of writing snarky things to people because I just didn't have the patience or the compassion to form cogent arguments. But at the same time, I'm also very disappointed and saddened to see how Twitter has divided our community. We fight for the same cause, yet people that I've really respected have reached the point of straight up insulting me when I disagree with them. I know these people, they would never say this kind of stuff to me in person. It's a disappointing type of situation. He goes on with this thread. I just, I, I literally, I read that just moments ago and I thought, what I want to start this show off on that foot. I want to start this show off on the foot because we're we're going to talk about things today and tomorrow and the next day and days after that some of you will disagree with, some of you will agree with, and people are taking pot shots at one another and going at each other and Right now, people across the country, fueled by a Globe and Mail article, are going to start piling on people who drive pickups, and then people who drive pickups are going to start piling on people who drive electric vehicles, and then there's going to be all this fighting, and we're going to be distracted from the things that really matter, and when it comes down to it, who cares about some of this stuff? Let's focus on what matters. We're going to do that. That's what we do here on Real Talk. This show is presented by the team at Bitcoin Wealth. If you're keeping an eye on Bitcoin, it's, it's, it's moving again. Why? I don't know. Don't ask me. When I have questions, I go to the team at Bitcoin Wealth. A lot of factors at play here. Sometimes you just want to talk to a human being that can give you some insight into why crypto moves when it does, rises, falls. No, it matters to people that are invested in it, right? You can find Bitcoin well. And by the way, they've got ATMs, Bitcoin ATMs across the country. They're right at the top under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Our team hopes on behalf of Sarah Hoyle, Sam Brooks, and myself that you had a fabulous weekend. We'll maybe get into some chit-chat, some small talk a little bit later on, find out what people were up to, who's watching the Olympics. I finally started binge-watching Ted Lasso. I finally got into it. I thought I'd watch an episode last night. It was up until 2 o'clock in the morning because I couldn't stop watching it. Now there's a whole second season, which is very exciting. We'll talk about some of the stuff making news. We're going to talk about those those Toronto encampments that were busted up violently by police officers a few days ago. That's coming up in about 10 minutes time. But we lead off today with another look at this anti-Alberta oil inquiry, this witch hunt, so to speak, uh, conducted by Steve Allen at Premier Jason Kenney's behest. It's the one that's had extension after extension. It's had, a, a, you know, an, an addition to its budget and still really nothing except for a leak to our leadoff guest, Sandy Garasino. You've heard her here on the show before, a former trial lawyer, a columnist, a journalist with the National Observer. Welcome back to the show, Sandy. It's great to see you. 
Nice to be here, Ryan. Can we talk about trucks? You want to? You want to lead off with? I I, I have many. I don't care about I have, trucks. I don't care about trucks either. I care about things like pollution, and I care about things like aggressive driving. But that's not limited to yeah. truck drivers. And Ford's about to release these EV, these electric pickups, yep. and everybody else is following suit. And this is just a huge stupid distraction, Sandy. How did you yeah. get your hands? How did you get your hands on a leaked copy of this Allen report? Tell us everything. It flew in over the transom. Remember when <laughs> yeah. there were transoms? Yes. In the olden days? Yeah. It flew in electronically over the transom. So you've had a chance to... Okay, first of all, uh, as soon as I saw you tweeting about this, as soon as I saw you tweeting from Garasino at Garasino, you said, I've read the draft report in its entirety. I dropped everything and I went, oh, here we go. Here we go. So for those that are maybe requiring a little bit of background... Can you can you remind us or bring us up to speed on what this is all about? Okay, well, we all um, have have heard now for years about um, the Vivian Krauss theories uh, and allegations about so-called foreign funding of environmentalist and indigenous opposition to uh, the Alberta oil sands development. And there's been a, 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 and in that, although Ms. Krauss has walked that back considerably, has been the uh, implication that uh, American business interests, oil and gas interests are pulling the strings here and are behind the scenes manipulating uh, both environmentalists and in, and indigenous opponents to pipeline and uh, uh, resource development in Alberta. Hence, we have at long last, after uh, many years of CRA audits, and now uh, Steve Allen has been has been tasked with with this uh, commission to uh, dig deep and find out the truth. And he has he issued a report. Uh, and I believe that was on June 20th, uh, giving uh, organizations that were implicated in his findings in some fashion or other that he found to be participants in a so-called anti-Alberta energy campaign, uh, the opportunity to respond. So what, what I have seen very well may not be the final report because all of these organizations got roughly a week to respond uh, after two years of investigation, uh, findings made against them, and uh, they got a week to respond. And then he has an opportunity to uh, take their views into account after he's already reached judgment about them um, and then issue a final report to the government. So how would you characterize the process here? I mean, what would be your assessment of the way that Mr. Allen's conducted the report or the investigation, if you want to call it that? Does dog's breakfast convey anything? I mean, this this got underway with terms of reference that were uh, um, extremely prejudicial to any kind of fair process. Uh, Mr. Allen conducted the commission largely in secret. Uh, he says in his report that he spoke to over 100 individuals. Uh, I'm one of the people that he spoke to. I know one or two others. Um, but there's nothing in public, nothing in the public record. There's no transcript of evidence, no public um, indication of what was, uh, uh, of what the source material is, apart from um, 
uh, a database that I used in in my research um, and a Canadian tax uh, database. So there's some basic information. Uh, this was delayed over, this was delayed multiple times. The budget was increased, but still there was no actual ever examination of the real documentation of the grants that have been made to uh, environmental and indigenous groups, uh, what, the, what the source documentation is, what the grant, re- grant reports are. We only have the very, effectively the very same broad brush strokes that informed Ms. Krauss in her in in her uh, allegations and statements, uh, Sandy, you, you know you tweet nowhere did they interview the funders or grant recipients, attain original grant applications, reports, receipts, audit data, or correspondence in drawing inferences about funder or recipient intent. The crucial missing piece of this entire controversy: the inquiry committed exactly the same errors in exactly the same way that caused serious mistakes in the first place. What do you mean by that? Well, effectively, I mean, effectively, it's hard to imagine that Steve Allen was actually ever a forensic accountant because this is not how you conduct any kind of audit. All that we've got really is a picture painted with a potato, not with a fine-tuned brush. So, for example, you see major, major mistakes happen because... One example being uh, his finding about who directed any of the um, uh, uh, any of the activities and and how these grants uh, were formed in origin, because he relied on a 13 year old slide deck that was produced by an a contract employee of the environmental groups, um, largely Pembina, but also Stand. Uh, stand Earth. He relied on that because it had the name of the contract employee's uh, consulting firm on it. So he says, "Well, this is the consulting firm that directed everything." Sorry, this is the. If he had ever spoken to the original grant uh, funders or the recipients, he would know that the person and organized and consulting firm whose name is on the slide deck is actually the employee of the Canadians who hired him. Sandy, when this is all said and done and, you know, four or five million dollars have been spent on it and it's taken several years and uh, there's been extension after extension and and much criticism of it and, and much hype around it, I'm sure, from the premier. Keep in mind, I mean, this was one of his election promises. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but we're going to go after the people that have gone after Alberta oil and that's going to be and then the crowd goes nuts Uh can anybody take this report seriously? I mean, what's the value of this report, if any, to the province that's just paid for it? It, it, it certainly doesn't expose anything. The one thing that I think that the report does and, and uh, that I think is most important is that it puts to bed, uh, hopefully forever, the idea that there was a conspiracy by uh, business interests or by by outsiders uh, there was no conspiracy. The finding was that this was basically the honest, um, this was driven by all of these grants have been driven by truly um, uh, environmental and altruistic motives. Um, and also 
uh, land conservation is the primary motive. I, but at the same time, what I think is very dangerous about this report is the finding, the very, very broad brush finding that um, organizations that um, say, for instance, participated in major land conservation projects like the Canadian Boreal Forest Initiative or the Great Bear Rainforest, which were started um, years before any pipeline proposal, that these were um, in in pith and substance anti-Alberta uh, oil and gas development projects, and I, I just I, I think that's I think that's an extremely misleading finding. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, British Columbia, my mother collapsed in heat exhaustion in a heat wave in Vancouver that killed hundreds of people in British Columbia and Lytton, BC burnt to a crisp. I think we all understand that climate change is here, it's happening and it has to be addressed. And I think in a large degree, this report is, is kind of uh, coming at this this, the camera, the puck has, the puck has already moved on. The game has moved on. We're on to climate change now and addressing that the best way we can. You you made an interesting note. I wanted to ask you about the, the specifically about Ducks Unlimited. Can you dig into that a little bit for us? Well, one of the things that's so fascinating is that um, Commissioner Allen redacted uh, grants, hundreds of millions of dollars in grants that were made to Ducks Unlimited that largely went to support Canadian boreal forest project work. Um, He found that the Canadian boreal forest uh, project was an an anti-Alberta campaign. Uh, And then he deleted Ducks Unlimited um, he also deleted in, indigenous groups largely from um, being part of any of these, these activities, even though both Ducks Unlimited and indigenous groups were very much involved in, in these projects. Uh, and it, so it has the, it, has the uh, it smacks of bias to, uh, to, to redact an organization what, by what appears to be, well, Ducks Unlimited is a hunter's group, so... They're friendlies to the Kenny government. They're friendlies to conservative interests. So is that why they were removed? Because Ducks Unlimited is by far, by far the largest foreign funded grant recipient in the environmental movement in Canada. Ultimately, let me ask you to look into your crystal ball a little bit here. How do you see the Alberta government and specifically Alberta's premier utilizing this report once it's released to the public? Well, I'm sure that um, uh, Premier Kenny will make all the hay that he can out of the fact that the commission has tarred uh, a wide swath of Canadian environmental and conservation projects as anti-Alberta campaigns. And, And I think that's what he wanted. I think he really wanted, I think what Commissioner Allen failed to do that he really wanted was give him that there's a real conspiracy behind this. And, and uh, so it's a little bit of a mixed bag, uh, but I, I'm sure Premier Kennedy is going to uh, go on the um, war path about anti-Alberta campaigns. How much difference that's going to make to anybody's opinion? 
anybody's guess. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. In, in closing, I've, I'll have i be honest. I was trying to enjoy the weather outside and I was on daddy duty this weekend and having a wonderful time. So I tried to stay off Twitter as best I could. But I see that there's been some flare up with uh, Vivian Krause, who I've interviewed several times and and uh, and some other folks. And, and there's I, I saw an assertion uh, that essentially she may have been participating in this report. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it's not. Do you have any insight into the role that uh, Ms. Krause may or may not continue to play uh, through these proceedings? Well, I have I have no idea. I only know from her statement on Twitter that she is expecting to be paid $30,000 plus $10,000 in expenses. I don't know what you spend $10,000 in expenses for during during um, a pandemic. I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned that uh, the the terms of reference have very specific guidelines about the conditions under which a witness is to be paid, uh, which don't appear to apply to Ms. Krause. So <clears throat> if she's not paid as a witness, what was her role with the with the commission? Because presumably what we wanted, what everybody wanted was a was an unbiased and independent, uh, examination largely of the claims that she's been making for many years. If she is a paid participant, uh, I think that that casts a, a huge shadow over the credibility of, of this report. Sandy Garasino, uh, former trial lawyer, columnist, journalist with the National Observer. Thanks for making time for us this morning. It's nice to check in with you again. Thanks for having me, Ryan. You bet. I recommend you follow Sandy on Twitter at Garasino for further insights uh, into this. We sure appreciate her time. In just a moment, we're going to take a look at what's been going on in, in Toronto with regards to these these encampments being taken down by law enforcement. There's There's uh, been a lot of talk about that and we're going to be joined by dr andrew bond in just a second we want to remind you that this show happens because we have teams like the team at park power real talk builders that make sure we can continue to grow this show park power is powering our real talk rj hashtag that's what we encourage you to use on twitter and of course on instagram as well but if you want to comment on what you're hearing here on the show Hoyles is keeping an eye on the Real Talk RJ hashtag at parkpower.ca. You can compare rates, what you're currently paying to what you could be paying them for your electricity, internet, and natural gas. They take 10% of their electricity profits and they give them back to nonprofits in the community. You even have a choice when you sign up on where you want those funds to go. How cool is that? With the promo code 2021-RealTalk, you save 70 bucks off your first bill with Park power also want to remind you that the team at local waste for more than 25 years has been talking trash that's right they're working with businesses big and small for finding waste management solutions mikhail the ceo over at local waste with some wise words said you know air is free but dumping it is very expensive don't let those other big multinational corporations sell you massive bins you don't need. Local Waste grows their relationship with your business as your business grows. It's all about integrity. You can find them online at localwaste.ca. They'll take their resources to get you out of a bad contract with your current provider. They want to work with you. And of course, Trash Talk presented by Local Waste coming up on Friday. If you have something you need to get off your chest, send it to us talk at ryanjesperson.com well it seems like the entire nation was paying attention to what was going on in toronto last week i mean check this out this tweet just one example of video captured by citizens 
uh, journalists as well who had been frozen out, by the way, maybe a completely separate conversation. This tweeted by a doctor who said, do not look away. This is the violence in our city in Toronto and a chronic failure on housing as a human right. Look at this. Police officers, as you can see, taking down demonstrators, taking down residents of this encampment. It's obviously raised the ire of many, and the story has continued with demonstrations outside uh, police headquarters where further violence has ensued. Uh, Dr. Andrew Bond is the medical director at Inner City Health Associates. He's also the co-chair of the Canadian Network for the Health and Housing of People Experiencing Homelessness, a lecturer at the University of Toronto's Department of Family and Community Medicine. Doctor, welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us this morning. Thanks so much. Nice to see you, Ryan. Your first reaction when you saw that? I mean, what's going through your mind as you see the replay there on video? Yeah, this is this is not something that anybody wants to see happen in their city, no matter who you are. Um, certainly when you see this going on, you know things have gone awry and gone off the rails. And, uh, and this is really something that we need to make sure does not happen again and needs to stop right now. It's, it's certainly gone too far. Huge numbers of injuries that have happened uh, in, in the encampments to... Uh, both the public, uh, media, and to people who are residents in encampments as well. And so certainly not the way forward and not the way to uh, to ensure that we get people housed and, uh, and off the streets. So that was that was five days ago. That was July 21st. That was the eviction uh, by Toronto Police at Lampert Stadium Park in Liberty Village about a month ago. A similar community uh, in Trinity Bellwoods Park had uh, police and security services descend on it to to enforce the trespass notices that had had been put into place there. There's nothing really new here in our home city of Edmonton. We saw the same thing last summer and cities across Canada and for that matter around the world have seen it um what's changing the narrative or what's developing in in toronto how is how are are these flare-ups or how are these news stories if you want to call them that driving public opinion or public conversation about people experiencing homelessness yeah it's a great question i mean you're you're absolutely right this is not just uh in toronto and it's certainly not just in canada either uh we know that people experiencing homelessness throughout covid have been just pummeled while we've all been uh, had a really tough go over the last year and a half. Those who don't have somewhere to stay that's safe and private have struggled drastically throughout the last year and a half without the resources to keep themselves safe. Uh, so certainly COVID is, the, is a new dimension to this right now where people are really uh, getting more entrenched in their positions, mostly because of fear, just like any one of us, um, you know, would really in general not feel comfortable staying in a shelter system. It's a, you know an unusual and difficult place to be and to spend time. Doing that during COVID when you don't know if people are vaccinated, you don't know how safe it is right now, has really driven uh, much stronger feelings on all sides. Uh, And we know that after a really long year and a half, the city is very um, committed to trying to open up parks for for good reason. We know that people want to get their families like ourselves out into parks and spending time there. And we have to now balance the uh, the, the desire and, and, and really big, very public places. And so lots of in- intensity on all sides. Uh, what, what's when it, when it comes to the, the factors that have led up to this, it, it sort of feels almost like there, there may have been a bit of a, a pressure cooker type scenario. And, and we'll note just as a team that you notice, when, especially when you look at the stills. Uh, by these talented photojournalists that have covered this story, you do see one recurring police officer. There's, there's one kind of, and I say this facetiously, there's one kind of star of the show that's really in the mix. Looks like he showed up to crack skulls that day. But typically, something
something builds to this. Can you give us some insight for, for those of us that don't live in that neighborhood or, or in that city for that matter? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, like I was saying with, with COVID, it's been a very difficult time for everybody. Um, and certainly we have the largest homeless population in the, in the country or in the province here. Uh, and so there's a huge number of people. We've had increasing numbers in the encampments to over five, 600 or so in the last six months. There's been a huge uh, attempt to try to get people to come indoors from the city. Lots of very good workers at the city um, trying to work with people to, to help them find somewhere safe to go. But because of COVID and because of continual outbreaks in shelters and hotels, they've been unable to get people to come indoors. And even public health is, has uh, denied access to people coming indoors for quite a period of time. And so really we have um, this thing running up against the challenge of trying to reopen at the same time. And everybody wants to deliver publicly from the political end of things to reopen and get people back into parks. And so really it's a time pressure with this delayed ability to try to transition people out of encampments and into into shelters and so that's really just come to a head in this also we know that um, there has been a really strong presence where the the first approach uh, at Trinity Bellwoods like you had mentioned uh, just a few weeks ago had a huge police presence uh, with both drones as well as uh, mounted police and uh, and having different uh, technology for uh, for managing cell phones for example and so that really uh, catalyze the the communities to come back and try to prevent this from happening again and again. And so over the last few weeks now, this has really been escalating, uh, unfortunately, to this. And, and you're absolutely right. This is not all the police. Um, certainly, there are lots of good folks who are trying to just do their job and do what they've been instructed to do. And unfortunately, as you know, whenever you have a high number of police presence of any kind, um, it doesn't take much to trigger things and to have a few people go off and have a really uh, you know, difficult and, and unwanted experience on all sides that can re- lead to a lot of damage. Uh, so I think, uh, unfortunately, this is uh, a few people as part of a bigger problem that that's really driving this right now. Yeah. And, and maybe to state the obvious, I, I would imagine several people there probably have complicated or quite negative past experiences or impressions of law enforcement based on their reality, uh, which could certainly, uh, I would imagine, add to the emotion, right? And and add to pushback. And then, of course, that becomes a vicious circle. Absolutely. There's, there's a huge numbers of traumatized individuals who have certainly been uh, at the wrong end or a difficult end of interactions with police for a very long time. So it doesn't take much to, to spark and stir things as well on that side. Uh, so it's, it's a really complicated time. People are really afraid of going indoors right now. So as much as, uh, you know, we know that, that we would love to have parks opened up, we need to make sure that we have a, a path and an approach that's able to bring people indoors safely and voluntarily. There are ways to do that. There are protocols to do that. And there are cities around the country that are doing better or worse jobs. We know that Winnipeg's done a great job uh, and has been really working over this over the last few years. London, Ontario, here in, the, in our province, has a limit of three three tents per encampment, keeping them very small. That's that's really prevented this from happening, and they've actually endorsed having those tents be able to stay, though. Um, so certainly there are more permissive and supportive ways to do this, and I think it's really important to, to remember that ultimately people who are living in encampments are making a rights claim. They are saying under the International Covenant on Economic, Social, Cultural Rights that the right to housing is we have nowhere else to go. We are stranded. We need to be safe. This is where we can feel safe right now. And so we need to work with them on that basis to help bring them indoors, to get them somewhere safer. And it doesn't always mean that you can just move them right away. That's a really complicated thing. And they've been through an incredibly hard year and a half. And so it takes time. It means patience on all sides. 
And certainly this is not a display of patience. Dr. Andrew Bond, our guest, medical director at Inner City Health Associates, your organization uh, tweeted the day of. I mean, this was five days ago as well as that as that uh, confrontation was occurring as the city. You're talking about Toronto uh, repeatedly deploys disproportionate use of force to evict people from homeless encampments. ICHA, the Inner City Health Associates, continues to denounce this as unsafe, unhealthy and a violation of human rights law, joining Public Health Ontario. CDC and the United Nations. Can, can you take us into the perspective and, and what a healthy approach, what a just approach, what, what a what a an approach that respects human rights law would look like? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, for drilling down on that. So um, we know that that going in and clearing encampments like this, the vast majority of people don't go indoors even after. So they, they get injured in the process. They don't go indoors. They disperse to other locations. The CDC and the CHS Center for Disease Control has said very clearly that this leads to increased risk of COVID spread, especially because people then disperse further into places that we don't know where they are. We can't access them to support them. So we know that that actually causes not only re-traumatization, but actually increases the rate of spread of COVID and also puts them at risk of not being able to get help for other health concerns that they may have. It makes them very much harder to reach. So that's one thing on the health. We know it's not a healthy approach. We certainly know it's not safe. We watch the violence. We certainly had huge numbers of injuries in terms of lacerations, wrist fractures, ankle fractures, uh, head injuries, eye injuries. So we certainly know that it's not been a safe process by any means. Um, and in terms of the rights-based approach, we know that in order to, to be rights compliant is that we, it is actually against human rights law to forcibly evict people from encampments. And there is a protocol that was written by the former UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing, who happens to be a Canadian lawyer, who actually laid out exactly what has to happen to help clear encampments. And that's a negotiated formal arrangement over time that includes ensuring people while they're there have access to food, shelter, water. And then we have we come up with a negotiated approach to find out what kind of place do they want to live? How do we help get them there? What are the supports they need to make those transitions? We can do that. It does take time and it's been done in other places. Uh, and it's really a negotiated, pro very detailed process with case by case to help make sure we get people housing because we do know and shelter. We do know that there is space between the shelter and housing that's that's here right now, between rapid housing initiative from the federal government, modular housing initiatives right across the country. We know that Vancouver's made a commitment exactly to do this at a high level with an MOU between the province and the, and the city of Vancouver to try and get people in. Um, so we know that we can make the kinds of arrangements to be able to move people, but it takes a really coordinated, high level approach between the municipalities, sometimes the province and people on the ground and those who are supporting them to come up with detailed plans for each one. This is not a high number of people, right? We know we're dealing with about 400 people. And for the vast majority, about 100 to 150 are those who are really committed and, and, and afraid of moving indoors. That's not a lot of people to be able to actually come up with a plan for, but we have to get very comprehensive about how we do that. It will take probably six to eight weeks of negotiating to do it. This way is, I, the, the thought I think is that this way with force is faster. Unfortunately, it's not though, because we know while it makes sense or feels like it makes sense to, to move quickly, it's practical, it doesn't deliver the outcomes that even those who are trying to enforce it want, which is to get people out of encampments. People end up back in encampments anyway. So yeah. let's come up with an approach that actually keeps people healthy, supports them through the process, doesn't re-traumatize them, and is actually effective. Um, whether or not you agree with the politics or not, there's only one way that actually delivers people to the kind of safe, secure space that gets them out of out of encampments. And that's the one that follows this more rights compliant approach. So even if you're only committed to the practicality of it, that's what we should be doing. Dr. Bond, you mentioned Winnipeg. What What is it that Winnipeg's done well in your assessment? 
Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, so they have a program called the Gegegena Oma, or um, Coming Home, uh, which is a, gr- a large number of homelessness organizations that have been working with peers and Indigenous organizations and staff to, to help over time to steward people who are in encampments to ensure that this kind of approach is very detailed is it has all the kinds of individuals, whether it's case managers, healthcare providers, social workers, harm reduction workers, and peers, to help move them into from encampments, and they and they get there really early. So you don't wait until a large encampment builds up. As soon as people move in, you start working with them to find out what exactly is their need, so that we actually are on top of it right away. And so they've been doing this for a few years now, and they've managed to avoid large encampments because of that. But it does take both the community workers, peers and housing and municipality sectors working very closely together and really coordinating with a shared goal of ensuring that people get off the streets. And that takes some prioritization, understanding that people have lived really complex lives and that we need to find out what's the tailored solution for those individuals. Because the answer is, if we don't provide it to them, they're going to end up back in encampments. And so no one wants that. Neither does the individuals who are living there. We have to find out what it is that they're afraid of, what it is that they need to be able to, to survive indoors. Most people want to be indoors. The vast majority, I've almost never met somebody who actually only wants to be outdoors. And so it's finding out what's that unique person. If we come up with one broad paintbrush and say, everybody, this is where you're moving to and this is what's going to be there, you know that that's going to work for 30 40%. And then for a whole other swath, it's not going to work at all because we haven't taken the time to understand what is your distinct and unique need and how do we help meet that together? And that just takes putting in the time. It's it's interesting hearing people talk about homelessness or or as I've been counseled to adjust my language, houselessness. And I've heard some some powerful comments from people saying this is my home. Uh, the, these lands have been, you know, my family or or, you know, when it comes to my ancestors, this has been our home, uh, you know, for, for many, many years, in some cases, centuries. But but I don't have a house right now. So houselessness is is the preferred uh, verbiage or, or phrase there we've we've seen uh, you know across even in our province you know a, a small community the, the relatively speaking the small community of medicine hat essentially says it has worked to eradicate homelessness uh edmonton's former mayor stephen mandel said we can we can eradicate homelessness in 10 years and and current mayor don iveson uh now nearing the end of his tenure has also said that that's something that he's endeavored to do do you believe that homelessness or houselessness one day can ultimately be eradicated? In other words, can it be solved? Do you think that's possible? It's a great question. So I mean, I, I think at, at a high level, absolutely it can. It takes being very precise about what we're talking about. In general, what we're talking about is chronic homelessness, is that short-term emergency crisis homelessness is not something that can be solved only because crises happen and we have to respond, just like any other kind of crisis of a social or economic nature. People will temporarily for whatever reason, need to have somewhere to go. But we need to keep that temporary. And so all of these commitments are about chronic homelessness or homelessness for more than three to six months, depending on where you are. We know that in the throne speech last year, um, you know, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau made a commitment as well to eradicating homelessness over 10 years. So the original national housing strategy said that we would half homelessness over a 10-year period. Now they've They've doubled down and said they will eradicate homelessness in 10 years. So they've certainly put that on the table as the goal and the benchmark to be measuring against. Can we do that? We absolutely can do that. We know how to do that. It is a failure of of housing strategy right now and housing investment. And it is possible to do that. Absolutely. 
is a combination of having good affordable housing in the right amounts. And it means being very tailored to each of each location around the country, but there are lots of good organizations, people doing that work to know exactly what that takes. We know that the $70 billion commitment from the federal government for the national housing strategy is not going to get us there. So there definitely needs to be more. Uh, we know that a lot of that money is going to just replacing existing commitments that have already been made that were going to lapse. And so that doesn't actually get us anywhere further ahead. Uh, but we have the analyses out there and the reports out there to guide what it would take. Can we end chronic homelessness? Absolutely. Even in Toronto, which is and Vancouver and some of the larger cities across the country, we can do that. We know the numbers that it takes to do that. And even Toronto, as, as the city of Toronto, has tried to make some of the commitments about what we could actually do to, to get there. And they've asked the federal government for those supports. So I have hope that we can get there. We do need to double down on this. It is horrendously expensive to keep people homeless, both on the healthcare system criminal justice system and the housing systems is far, far cheaper and more effective to ensure that people have adequate, affordable, supportive housing. We can deliver. We've got the models. It's now time. And with a national housing strategy, I would say that this is the decade that we should be doing this. Is funding the biggest hurdle or, or I mean, I would imagine obviously mental health and, and, and many other issues come into play, but is funding the biggest one? Funding is absolutely the biggest one. We know that there is just insufficient affordable housing stock right across the board. The The wait list for community housing in Toronto is over 80,000 individuals. If you signed up now, you would have to wait about 15 years before you come up on the wait list. Um, that is not a situation that is tenable in any way whatsoever. This is something that's mirrored across the country right now. We need to have large volumes of, of adequate, affordable stock. But you're right, there, there has to be the kinds of supports in place also for those who have mental health or substance use challenges that also uh, come along with their experience. And we need to make sure that they are supported. So it's affordable and supportive housing. Some just need the affordability. Some need affordability and supportive housing. We need to have the pieces there. We have the teams doing the healthcare and around the country. We just need to be able to get them organized and have them have these spaces within which to work with their clients. So, so bringing this back to what we saw in the 21st, it was it was it was obviously a dramatic development. The entire country is watching. I'm getting text messages from friends in B.C. and Saskatchewan going, what the hell is going on in Toronto today? When it comes to the longer term impact, you think of that of that police action. How would you characterize it? Are people still talking about that? You think that there was some I mean, obviously there was some when it comes to the reputation of the Toronto police, some damage done there. But what do you think is the longer term impact? Potentially a loss of trust with that community. Where do you see it going? Yeah, absolutely. This is going to be difficult to turn around at this point. I think that there's uh, a real digging in that's happening and we definitely need to uh, to take the heat out of this situation. That's hard to do because this is about as heated as it gets. Um, you know, this is Canada's version of L.A. Echo Park, uh, which is a large police operation in uh, in Los Angeles uh, to try and clear an encampment. They then had a federal court come in and say that not only does that not permit it, but they actually have to legally commit to housing individuals, like the homeless community of 40,000 people by the end of the year. Um, now that's been appealed at this point and we'll see where that goes, but we know that this is only going to you know, add uh, to the tension and it'll make the negotiated approach that much more difficult because we want to be able to have this happen in good faith. Uh, it will take some time. It will take some apologies. I would imagine it will take some, uh, a certain amount of mea culpa that this was not the way to go. This is not what anybody wants. We have city councillors, five who have written to the to the mayor's office and to the mayor asking for this to stop and, and really claiming that this is not something that we can see continue. So certainly we know that no one wants to see this. This is not the path that's going to deliver either the outcome 
or is going to treat people with respect after all that everybody's gone through with, with COVID, especially those who are homeless or houseless. Uh, when, uh, in closing, uh, Dr. Andrew Bond, our guest, uh, you know, I, I, I think just as, as an average person, like as a citizen, you know, you, you, you do your best to try to get up to speed on, on the, the, the driving issues behind what we see around us, including houselessness, including the encampments, including uh, police versus demonstrator violence or however you want to characterize it. And the average person uh, going about their their day and paying as much attention as they can spare to the to the issues and the headlines, trying to get up to speed and trying to understand these things. What's one thing that you would like the average person to think about? In the next time they see an encampment or the next time they're out on a, a family bike ride and, and they see someone that's set up a lean to or a tent in, in their city's river valley or, or the next time they see somebody experiencing homelessness, so to speak. What's one thing you'd like people to focus on and remember? I think especially now, this has been an incredibly trying and grueling over a year and a half with COVID, especially right now. Um, I think to take a moment and realize just how much harder that likely has been for the person that you are seeing or coming across, that it has been beyond grueling. It has probably involved serious physical, emotional trauma um, day in, day out for people just to barely be able to survive, that most people who are in that situation have a very well-founded fear about how they can try and stay safe and don't have the resources to try and keep themselves safe. And so we'll do whatever they can and are ultimately doing it in a way that is is actually quite peaceful. Um, and that the harm that's, that people are experiencing are mostly actually amongst to, to themselves, not to other people. Hmm. And so to really just have deep empathy for the struggle that people are facing in that moment and to know, man, this has been hard for us. This has been, this has been so much harder. I wonder what we can even like do to actually try and help them get somewhere to go uh, and to advocate for the city to say, they just need a space. You know, people do want to go indoors. No one wants to stay there. And so how do we help them get indoors and what do they need? You're, as I mentioned in the intro, you're a faculty member at, at St. Michael's Hospital, the Health Justice Program. That, that, that's, that caught my intrigue. That caught my attention, the Health Justice Program. We've, we've actually been having some conversations over the past number of months about uh, systemic racism in healthcare. We talk about access to healthcare. This certainly would qualify when you talk about health. There's, there's physical health and there's mental health, mental wellness, et cetera. Um, what does that mean to you, health justice am i asking a question that would take you an hour to answer maybe it's a very big question but that's okay it's a it's basically the intersection of understanding that what is a fair and equal society mean in terms of people's access to health but also those conditions that impact their health and how do we ensure that particularly that the legal system itself does not become something that, that negatively impacts their health or the, the, the criminal justice system, as we saw in the case of the encampment clearance. How do we make sure that people actually have policing that actually supports them and protects them, legal systems that actually ensure that their rights are realized rather than infringed? And how do we ensure that the best of our healthcare and social services can actually help support people to meaningfully and effectively thrive the way that, that, that they're supposed to be able to do in the society. That's really what it's about. Um, in the, the, the best nutshell I can give you. Yeah. Well done. Uh, doctor really appreciate your perspective on this and, and on behalf of, of our audience and, and you know, your fellow Canadians, thanks for your advocacy. It's important to say the least. 
Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks so much for the attention on this important issue. Yeah, you got it. That's Dr. Andrew Bond. Uh, He's the co-chair of the Canadian Network for the Health and Housing of People Experiencing Homelessness, otherwise known as CNH3. And he's the medical director at Inner City Health Associates. I saw a comment here on our live chat from Lisa who said that video doesn't even look like Canada. And I know that even if you're listening, if you're downloading this podcast and listening to that interview, chances are you probably saw that video or or some video from there. There were journalists that had been there, uh, many of them uh, sort of waving red flags of their own about how journalists were being treated down there. Uh, but this is obviously an issue that extends beyond Toronto. This is a, a, a national and even an international issue. And we're always curious for your thoughts on what you're seeing or what you're hearing here on the show. You can send us an email anytime to talk at RyanJesperson.com. And of course, you can uh, use our hashtag as well. Invoke our hashtag if you're on Twitter. Real Talk RJ. The team at Westworld Computers powers this studio. We've got the iMacs and the MacBook Pros and the iPads and the iPhones and everything else. I'm probably forgetting something because we're pretty much repping the entire lineup here. You can find them online 24 hours a day at westworld.ca. They'll ship anywhere. And that's also where you can book a service appointment. They've been looking after their customers from the sales point all the way through the full customer experience for more than 40 years, independently owned and still going head-to-head against that big box store. You know the one I'm talking about? The other store that sells all the apples? Why not go to Westworld Computers where they'll remember your name when you walk in, you call them, you ask for them by name, talk to your favorite service tech or your favorite sales rep, and they'll find you what you need just like they did for us at Westworld Computers. The teams at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge want to remind you that if you're looking for a new truck, If you're looking for a family sedan, or if you're looking for any entry in that Jeep lineup, including, as you can see, the 2021 Jeep Grand Cherokee L. That's the first Grand Cherokee with the third row of seating. You won't find a better selection than you will at the shared inventories of St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Proudly locally owned, you can find them online by visiting the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. It's also a great time if you're looking outside and thinking, you know what? We've still got time to turn our outdoor dream into reality. It's not too late to get in touch with the team at Eden Landscaping. Mike and his team for more than 20 years have been taking people's dreams, their cocktail napkin sketches, even to fast forward to present day and social media. Mike's telling me it's not unusual for people to have a whole board pinned on Pinterest. They'll meet and the folks will say, take a look at our Pinterest board and it cuts right to the chase. You say, this is what we love. This is what resonates with us. Can you do it in our backyard, our front yard or wherever? They accept the challenge. They love to solve problems. You'll find Eden Landscaping online at landscapeedmonton.ca. Well, I was looking forward to talking about this one with the team. You may have heard about a Globe and Mail article over the weekend. Pickup trucks are a plague on Canadian streets. It's a piece that was uh, written by uh, Marcus Gee. And it says many things have changed in pandemic times. One that has not is North America's love affair with the pickup truck. Even in the midst of economic uncertainty, consumers lined up to buy these hulking, belching kings of the road. Once the vehicle of the cowboy, the contractor and the good old boy pickups have become the continent's mainstream ride. And it's true. 
Even city parking lots are full of them. In Canada, Ford's F-150 has been the best-selling auto for years. He goes on to point out that in the United States, five of the top 10 selling automobiles are pickup trucks. Last spring, for the first time, Americans bought more pickups than they did cars. He wonders, for heaven's sakes, why? Most people no longer use pickups to haul bales of hay. They drive them to the mall to shop or the soccer field to drop off their kids. Why anyone thinks they need such a beast to do that is an abiding mystery. The columnist goes on to say what spectacular overkill. One survey found that three quarters of pickup drivers used the vehicles for hauling only one time or not at all in the course of an average year. Despite all those ads showing manly pickups growling up mountain roads or churning through mud, I will say it's good writing, even if the content's lousy. It's good writing. He says nearly as few drivers use them to go off road. Pickups have evolved to suit the way people use them, right? They often have big second rows, four doors and shorter cargo beds than they had in past. Cabs have all the latest electronics and attendant bells and whistles. They're suburban sedans on stilts. With big tires, powerful engines, and giant grills that serve little purpose except to impress. He goes on to say, even though automakers have greatly improved the fuel efficiency of the modern pickup and electric versions are coming soon, having these mastodons on the highway isn't exactly kind to the planet. He writes, and then there's safety. Anybody that's traveled a Canadian highway lately has been tailgated by a speeding pickup driver. Being in that big cab over that huge engine seems to make drivers think they own the road, lesser vehicles be damned. He wraps by writing, even if they weren't polluting and dangerous, the parade of pickups would be a blight on the roadscape and a finger in the eye of other drivers, a way of saying to everyone else, I am bigger, badder, and richer than you. A vehicle that started as a practical tool for hardworking people has become for many an obnoxious assertion of dominance and division. That in the Globe and Mail. So it may have had some traction, but it gained a whole lot more when Alberta's premier tweeted about it. Just yesterday, Jason Kenney, the Toronto Globe and Mail, writes the premier, is having a temper tantrum about pickup trucks. Premier Kenny goes on to say, I'm happy to say that about 40 percent of the vehicles on Alberta roads are pickups. That's been proven to be uh, false, by the way, but it doesn't matter. Not the first time. He says, maybe Toronto columnists should try getting around this province during a prairie blizzard in a smart car. That from Premier Jason Kenney of Oakville, Ontario. So it's got so it's got people divided, which I think was the play. It was probably the play by the Globe and Mail because everybody's talking about it today. And it was a great opportunity for Premier Jason Kenney. To virtue signal to his base, right? I mean, this is the guy that rode in from Oakville on the big blue Ram, by the way. He chose Ram, like others who voted for the back-to-back-to-back Motor Trend Truck of the Year. But I digress. Here's my take on this. I don't care what you drive. I don't care if you drive a pickup truck or a smart car. And if you drive a pickup truck and never take it off road and there's not a scratch in the bed and you've never hauled a bale of hay, guess what? That's okay. I think that more and more people are becoming aware of their environmental footprint and automakers are taking note. 
The Ford F-150, everybody's talking about this lightning that's coming out. This EV, the electric Ford F-150, will soon be all over the place on job sites, fleet vehicles, probably even up in Alberta's oil sands. Pickup trucks are becoming more fuel efficient. Some of them aren't. We've all seen the guys rolling coal, belching that diesel exhaust. And yeah, it's a bit of a piss off, isn't it? People think it's funny. Sure, there are aggressive pickup drivers, those that don't drive for the weather. I mean, for Premier, by the way, to be talking about getting around during a prairie blizzard, unless you've got 500 pounds of sandbags, probably the pickup's not your best bet. A Honda Civic with great snow tires is probably, as a matter of fact, better than an F-350 on the highway during a prairie blizzard. But you have to drive to know that, right, Premier? So my thing is this. I can understand where the Globe and Mail's coming from. Buddy makes some great points, but quite frankly, frankly, who cares? Who cares what somebody else drives? Who cares if somebody chooses a pickup but doesn't use it to haul bales of hay? And why let this turn into something that's going to divide us? I saw a great note from a real talker right out of the gates this morning. I think it was Penny that said, you know what? Everybody rips on pickup trucks until they need to borrow mine to move their apartment. Sounds about right. Now, we did not consult as a team on positional statements before this chat. So I have no idea where Sam and Sarah are going to land on this, but have you been paying attention to this story? I mean, is this something that, that you put some thought into over the weekend? Or do you have an inherent sort of a gut instinct on, on, on where you land here? Clickbait was my first thought Bingo. From, from the Globe and Mail. Then when the premier picked up on it, I thought, distraction. So I'm not really going to go down the rabbit hole of the pickup trucks. Um, it's just meant to, you know, rally the base of the UCP unnecessarily. I know... I know a lot of folks that drive pickup trucks that do not align themselves with uh, that party or any party. Yeah. So I just, I, I just, I really, I don't see the point. I see, you know, COVID numbers spiking. I see forests management being privatized. I see uh, <laughs> nurses getting potentially their, their wages cut. I see pepper spray being talked about. So I'm not distracted. I refuse mm. to be distracted. Yeah. Sam, you own a pickup truck, Sam. I do own a pickup truck. Do you truck. use it to haul bales of hay? I yeah, I've I, I got the truck from a farmer, so it has probably hauled hay in its life <laughs> at some point. Um yeah, fine. I'll bite. I'll take a position on this because I actually retweeted that article because I giggled when I read it. I actually it 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 sort of aligned with something that I've been quietly saying for a while that I think trucks are great. They're useful. They're wonderful tools when you have one. Mine is, you know, rusted to hell and covered in stickers. And it's currently sitting on my driveway full of a bunch of smashed up drywall. And I use it as a tool when I need a tool to haul things. But that's your choice. But that's my choice. I, You know, what I don't get is trucks as status symbols. That's like, that's a very Alberta style thing. It's a very, it's a flex in this province. You know, you, you get... You get more looks in this province driving a lifted pickup than you do driving a Mercedes. Yeah, and and, uh, and they cost about the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, right? you know, I'm just kind of at this point where it's just like, I think cars are more fun to drive. My daily driver is a Mazda three with a six speed manual, and I can rip around corners in it. And it's it's just it's exhilarating. Great in the winter. Do you ever get into the sixth it. gear? On the highway, dude. yeah. Oh, on yeah. On the highway, yeah, just cruising it. 
I'm just, I'm thinking about uh, when they're talking about the safety element, the safety element. Yes, there are arguments to be made around that. Getting knocked into by a vehicle that's elevated, actually your survival rate is much lower in pedestrian if you're in, you know, the pedestrian realm. The, I think this to me is also another clickbait, you know, trying to be divisive, going the bike lane route. Mm. So saying, oh, bike lanes versus trucks. And it's not about that. There's a lot of things that this is not about, right? And and so, Sam, I do agree with you. And, and I know that you're not saying it in a scathing or indicting way, but pickup trucks culturally are a bit of a status symbol. And and I am one who is like when I walk past, there's there's a, a, a family a couple of streets down from us that owns just an absolutely stunningly beautiful pickup. Like It's just every time I walk our dogs past the pickup, I stop and I just look at it. It's customized. It's beautifully built. It's it's based on my eyeballing. It's it's probably worth about 130 grand, and it's it's incredible. And I wouldn't drive it only because I'd be a little self conscious. But I do not begrudge the person that drives it in so many ways as I wouldn't begrudge somebody that drives a brand new Corvette or a, a brand new Mercedes Benz or a, a brand new Tesla. And the Tesla could be a status symbol in so many ways. So could a Breitling watch. So could a pair of John Fluvog shoes. So could anything else. And this to me just seemed like a bit of a weird play. Like the, the author, uh, the, the columnist here kind of drops in uh, this this little this one little note where he goes, uh, oh, yeah, let me try to find it. So I quote him directly because I don't want to be unfair here. But he basically says something like, oh, yeah, by the way, next year, there are going to be coming in a lot of electric models. Well, that's kind of a big detail. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a, a big detail to completely overlook. We have seen and I have experienced some people that are aggressive drivers on the highway, particularly, it seems, in bad weather conditions. Uh, and some of them are driving pickup trucks. Sure. Some of them are driving SUVs. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are driving Subarus that have all wheel drive. And some of them are driving cars where you're like, you clearly have no idea what you're getting yourself into. And I'll see you a kilometer down the road when you're spinning on your roof. It's not you can't sit there and say pickup drivers are bad drivers in so many ways as you can't say uh, people from different countries are bad drivers or people that are specific gender or bad drivers or people that are certain age are bad drivers. I thought it was a weird play. I thought it was a weird column. And then as soon as I saw the premier digging in on it, I went, oh, here we go. Yeah, here we go. I'd be curious to know what percentage of real talkers drive or own pickups. I bet you it's significant. I bet you it's a significant percentage. And if I'm no, I don't own a truck. I do own some four wheel drives. Um, and you know, you know, I, I love to go off road and, and that's been a, a, a family hobby of ours. You can look on my Instagram just recently, just back in June, we were wheeling with a bunch of big boggers, you know, guys r- rolling big turbo diesels on 44s. I mean, we've been around big trucks and I admire them. As a matter of fact, we have a lot of fun with them. I don't really appreciate these and what I mean by I don't appreciate, I'm not being like a scoldy sort of a school marm. What I mean by it is, is I'm not a fan of these types of exercises that that seemingly seek to divide for no apparent purpose. Yeah. You know, and, and there are more alternatives, by the way, just to, to touch one final time on, on the premier's note. Uh, there are other alternatives to pickup trucks than smart cars. I do think that needs to be said as well. Oh, there's not just one or the other? I do think that needs to be said as well. Just wanted to point that out. I think that is worth pointing out. I think what you need to take into consideration is the decal or decals 
that will tell you more about the vehicle and the driver than the vehicle itself. Are you talking about Calvin peeing? There's Kelvin peeing. There's all kinds of things. There's the middle finger extended toward Ottawa. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The number of fuck Trudeaus I've seen. Yeah. It's just like, come on. I always think that it's, it, it's, it's it, when you stamp something on your vehicle, that is your 24-7 position all the time, right? And so I'm always curious when I see, like just the other day, I saw a guy on, on uh, you know, was driving on the freeway. Totally fine. It's his car. He can do whatever he wants. But just a massive emblazoned across the whole back of the trunk. Only Jesus can save you. And I was like, hey, that's his play. That's totally fine. Uh, Number one, I'm just so curious. I am always the guy that will drive by and look. When we're driving as a family, Carrie's always like, why do you always look? I'm like, because I just, I, I'm curious. I want to know. Based yeah. on, on how people drive, based on, on how people change lanes, based on how, like some, some folks that, that sort of one pedals always all the way to the floor, right? You're either full gas or full, br- I just have to see these people. I just want to know what makes them tick. And so with the big, the big bumper sticker, only Jesus can save you, which is, I mean, that's his conviction. That's totally fine. I was, number one, I was like, I wonder if that's, if that ever works. Like, does anybody ever go, oh my gosh, I hadn't heard. It's the come to Jesus moment. It's the come to Jesus. But then like with the fuck Trudeau too, it's like, you know, uh, you know, your, your, your girlfriend, hey, hey, sweetheart, I've got us tickets to the symphony tonight. So we're, you know, we're going to clip our fingernails and head into the city. And, uh. Why don't we take my Hyundai? Why don't we leave the truck at home with all the stickers? You know, do you have any stickers? I mean, other than the hashtag real talk RJ on your vehicle, Sarah, do you mean the vinyl sticker pack that is now available at Ryan under the merch link? As yes. you can see, we now have our real talk logo and our real talk RJ hashtag. They're sold together as part of our vinyl sticker pack. So you can can rep real talk 24 7 on your notebook your laptop your vehicle or wherever else you apply this vinyl sticker pack available now for four dollars and 20 cents it's the 420 vinyl sticker pack at ryanjesperson.com there's one on the tailgate of my truck yeah a boy yeah. uh i used to i used to be big on stickers so okay. when i first when i was like 20 and I got my first vehicle. The first vehicle that I ever owned personally that I paid for uh, was a 1991 Jeep Cherokee Sport. It was white with black fenders, a five-speed stick, a beautiful truck. Absolutely loved it. And I was going out to Vancouver to go to university. And so I had several Alberta stickers on there just to, just to sort of plant my flag. You know what I mean? So, um, uh, you know, I had a big Calgary Stampeders. I had the big galloping horse right. on the back. And I had a big Calgary Flames Flaming Sea. Keep in mind where I was Boo. from, right? Where I was coming from. That's okay. You can have strong feelings. You know, who would have thought that I would go on to work for the Edmonton Oilers for seven seasons? Yeah, don't forget. where. Don't forget Samuel G. Brooks. Don't forget, you know. Um, but, uh, no, in all seriousness. So then, and then to identify, you know, as a proud snowboarder, I would uh, oftentimes have a couple stickers of like Whistler. the gear I would wear. Whistler was a big one. I had Whistler on my Thule roof rack. Yeah. Nice call. I had a big Burton 1977. I loved that the company was founded the same year I was born. I, I'm, I'm 
treating this like a psychotherapy session. I realize I'm giving you insight into all my. How do you feel my, about huh, that, Ryan? Why did you choose to apply that sticker in particular? Um, but now these days, I love the look of a of a. I don't. I think it's great if people put bumper stickers. That's totally fine. I've never understood people that put stickers on the paint. Yeah, I've never understood stickers on the paint and a sticker on the paint that's crooked. Just oh. I can't. I have to pass the car. I will pass them uh, because I can't look at it. You have one. I've picked one and only one and it is on the glass because you're right. I don't want it on the paint. And I made sure to make sure that it was just it was situated just correctly and in line. And yeah, all right angles. Will you tell us what it says? Tell your dog. I say hi. <laughs> I think it's amazing. <laughs> And that's a real insight. I laugh into when I see it in the parking lot every day. It's now, great. I have seen uh, you, you drove the pickup in a few days. I did, and it's a your your pickups the, the, the type of one that's like it, it needs to be shot. It needs to be photographed on Instagram because it's it's like it tells it tells a hundred stories. Um, I don't assume anything, Sam. But is there is there a process? Because how many stickers? There's there's got to be forty stickers on the truck. Is Something there, like that. Is there a yeah. can, can anybody just walk up and slap a sticker on there? Or does it have to? What has to? Happen. Oh, there is a there's a rigid application. I have a jury panel that I've right. appointed. Oh, that's smart. And uh, so everything is sent for review. It's about a six month process. So get your applications in early. Yeah. Oh, I see that there's a there's a, there's a uh, there's a d- debate underway on the live chat about the flames versus the Oilers. What have what have we bitten off here? Uh, Jillian says folks are always shocked when I'm courteous in my truck, and then they see a black chick and they're like, Oh, okay. Jillian, that's amazing. Alyssa says, when a truck is your entire personality, uh, and, and we do see that too, right? A lot of people, like this is kind of the joke, right? You get the big, you know, the F-350 or the Ram 3500 or the, or the big GM, and it's got like the, you know, the straight stacks in the back, and it's lifted up 12 inches, and you're rolling on 40s, and like it's just so, you know, and the big stereo, and you know, if you have the truck nuts on the back, and then, and then, you know, Buddy jumps out, and he's like five foot one, and you know, and, and, and people kind of snicker at that. However, a lot of people's vehicles are their personality. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could say so many things uh, about somebody that would be driving a slammed Subaru, right, with a big, loud exhaust. You could say the same thing about somebody with a Harley Davidson. You could say yeah. the same thing about somebody that is, you know, uh, living in relative squalor while driving a Maserati. I mean, people have people. There are people that that invest greatly in their vehicles because their vehicle represents so much about them or that's what they're trying to portray. And then there are people like my dad who just really, quite frankly, don't give a rip about what their vehicle says. I always admired my dad for and, and, and more in retrospect, because growing up, I mean, I always admired my dad. Let me be clear. But but in, in retrospect, looking, I always wondered, like my dad was a physician, right? Did well, uh, ne- never drove like n- always drove used cars, mm-hmm. never drove real fancy ones. I mean, he didn't drive, you know, junkers. But never drove really fancy ones. He just, that wasn't what defined him. I think he wanted his family to have other opportunities. They wanted to provide other things to us. And looking back as an adult, I would look back on the vehicles he drove and go, he could have easily driven a Benz or a Beamer for his entire career, right? Easily could have done that, decided not to. And I think that to me is one of the things that's really impressive. One of my friends, a friend of mine is a CEO and he drives the same car now 
that he drove when he bought it in 2016 before he had the job he has now. And he's more than happy driving it. And he doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. And if he showed up at the golf course in that car, it would be the least fancy car on that entire row. But at the same time, to me, I don't know why I'm thinking of invoking the word integrity. It's not like it has anything to do with integrity. But to me, it shows a, it shows a strength of character, maybe. Humility. Humility. Yeah. Right. And, and a secure sense of self. Yep. I, I mean, to me, the idea that uh, invoking that personality and how invested we are in our vehicles is exactly what Kenny was was banking on was the people that do really invest themselves in their identity through their vehicle. That's who the people, those were the people he was speaking to. Hmm. He was banking on that. Yeah. Uh, Travis says there's a minivan in his neighborhood that has balls deep in neon colored cursive on the back windshield. I would love to talk to that person. I would love to pick that person's brain. You know, the one I've always wondered, the sticker that to me is the worst. Actually, I shouldn't say that because someone's going to come up with a worse one. One of the worst. Mm, there you go. Is the sticker that it says something along the lines of my four by four doesn't care about your stick si- stick figure family. Have you seen this one? Yeah. Because, you know, everyone's everyone knows the stick figure family stickers. Yeah. I'm talking about the, the, you know, the mom and the three kids or dad and the mom and the two kids and the dog or like whatever. You know, here's our family, which I've always thought is also kind of strange. It seems to me like you're volunteering information about your family that you don't need to. I digress. But the one about the truck mowing down the stick figure family, I'm like, you're alluding to essentially mass murder. I've always thought that was a weird play, that one. So you know what I do? I drive by and I look at them. I look at them when I pass them. The teams at Dairy Queen want us to remind you that simply by being a real talker and showing up to the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, you automatically qualify for special promotions. That's right. When you show up to the Dairy Queens at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmont, Y Gardens, or Baseline Road and drop my name or Real Talk, you're going to get special deals. Now, we've got a big one, a fantastic initiative coming up in August that we're going to tell you about in just under a week. But today, I want to remind you that they are serving the fan favorite Kit Kat Blizzard. Drop everything you are doing and get to the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park for a Kit Kat Blizzard made with real Kit Kat candy bar pieces and a chocolatey topping blended with DQ's signature soft serve only at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Tell them that Jespo sent you. We also want to remind you that the team at Friesen Brothers is ready for whatever you're going to need to entertain this summer in your backyard because it is grilling season and you got your license to grill. Shout out to the five real talkers that walked away with those Friesen Brothers barbecue sauce gift baskets last week. You can find more information on that by following Friesen Brothers on Instagram. Just look for that post. Friesen Brothers, for more than 65 years, has been proudly Alberta-grown, Alberta-owned in 16 communities across the province. You know, sometimes this is a show that's going to that's going to dig into issues of the day, the stories that are making the headlines, the news that everybody's talking about. And every once in a while, we find a story that that catches our interest. We can't stop thinking about it and we need you to know about it, too. This is one of those. Have you heard about Pegasus imagery before? 
We're going to talk to the CEO in just a second. Uh, Cole medically retired from the military uh, after a serious parachuting accident, just 32 years of age. But but when he was looking back on his career, he was frustrated by one thing in particular. Firefighters and the challenges they faced, in particular wildland firefighters and the lack of tech, the lack of AI in the field. It prompted him to found Pegasus Imagery based out of Sturgeon County, Alberta, where they design, manufacture and deploy long range autonomous aircraft. Super cool stuff. The CEO of Pegasus Imagery joining us this morning. Cole, welcome to the show and thanks for making time for us on Real Talk. No, definitely. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Hey, Cole, can you help me out? I I don't want to butcher your last name. I don't want to mispronounce it. Can you pronounce it for me? That's uh, Rosen Treader. Rosen Treader. Happy. To, yeah, feel free to butcher away. No. Uh, when I went through basic training, uh, they called me Rosenberg for I think like, the first eight weeks. Oh, is that right? Nobody wanted to take a stab at it. So yeah, I'm not particular about the last name. It's all good, Ryan. Yeah. Well, listen. Uh, you first landed on our radar uh, a while ago, and you were named uh, one of Edify's top forty under forty for the amazing work that you've been doing here. And I know that there's a, a storied history that led up to Pegasus Imagery and the amazing work that you're doing right now. We'll talk about the implications of, of what this could mean for for wildfires and wildland firefighting. But but why don't you bring us up to speed on your military career and and how you wound up to where you are now? Uh, well, I did, I think, what most people do. Uh, I went through school, and uh, after high school, my, I had a really good set of parents, and uh, they basically asked me, what do you want to do next? And I didn't know. I didn't know what I wanted to go and do, take at university. So I did what you know my dad told me. He's like, okay, what are you going to do? Go get a job. So I went out, started working, then looking to try and find what, the, what my path was going to be. Uh, you know, It's actually 20 years, if you can believe it, uh, since 9-11. So I was actually working in Fort Saskatchewan uh, during 9-11. And then as soon as you know, I kind of heard on the, the radio that you know, there, there appears to be something happening, I was young, it's fit, it seemed like the right thing to do. So I signed up and joined the military. And then from there, uh, incredibly lucky. Uh, by the way, ab- an absolutely what I would call like an average career. I was inc- like super lucky to get uh, multiple deployments uh, with an amazing group of people like a whole true like different culture right so that's how i grew up uh, i had amazing mentors uh, a really strong network of people that you can trust to rely on uh team military didn't always have exactly what we needed but uh it just came down to the people really like the humans not the hardware that's that's really the important thing so mm-hmm. i went through a number of different uh deployments overseas from like afghanistan three times uh some an amazing experience on exchange in brazil uh, less ex- less exciting, but definitely cool. Uh, like parachuting into the Arctic, uh, I would recommend doing it once, uh, and then leaving it at that because it's minus seventy. <laughs> but you know, I ha- one of the one of the funny things about the military is that if you do something right, that okay. But if you do something right again, well, you're going to have to go and do a selection and a course for it and things like that. So I ended up becoming a parachute instructor as one of kind of my skill sets and that's actually the reason why i left the company i left the military to start pegasus was i was teaching on a course one night in uh here in edmonton and a simple mistake was made uh essentially like an extension cord kind of got dropped in my feet by one of the air crew and i went for a ride so i went to go jump out last after all the students had made it out and i ended up getting kind of towed behind the plane for a little bit uh also not recommended 
the good news is everything after that pretty much went the best way it could, right? So I wasn't too close to the plane where I would have got eaten against it. I wasn't too far away where my parachute would have deployed automatically. Uh, cable broke after a little bit. I fell. I landed. Uh, one of my friends was there and helped me walk off and then got back in the plane and jumped three hours later and then went to the hospital. So I'm not sure about that being smart or just being stubborn, but that was kind of a, a good kickoff to uh, actually leaving the military because you kind of talked about it in the start, Ryan. Uh, that injury is what led me to, uh, you know, having an idea that, to be fair, like this, this doesn't exist, right? In 20, especially in 2016, like a private company doing this type of stuff. But were you, nevertheless, uh, it's been a crazy journey. Cole, were you working, I mean, as part of your deployments, uh, had you, obviously, you know, we'll see instances, whether it's, it's uh, it could be ice storms or flooding or, or wildfires in, in the most serious circumstances. Oftentimes, you know, the Canadian military may be called in. Um, I, I think of, you know, people snickering at the city of Toronto, probably, what was it, 20 years ago when they called in the Canadian military during a snowstorm, but it signifies to the rest of the country that this is when it's truly serious. Did you have any wildfire fighting uh, deployments or assignments while you were in service? Uh, so 2013, Southern Alberta floods. Uh, my unit gets basically ripped out of Cold Lake where we're on an exercise and deployed straight to uh, High River. And we showed up and the very first thing the unit did was, hey, what is the plan? Uh, everybody just kind of was, not that they're, they weren't just standing around without a plan. Nobody was actively starting to make a plan. Uh, and then starting to execute and iterate on it because I, I'm sure everybody talks about this. You know, if you have a 40% plan in the military, that's good enough because the situation's always going to change. What we found is everybody's almost like paralysis before analysis, uh, looking at, hey, we need to have a really consolidated amount of information. But we didn't do that. We just immediately started filling sandbags and did the right, did what we thought was the right thing. So, you know, built a massive sandbag mountain, so to speak, is where the river bends were. And then on the wildfire side, uh, like, listen, every year the military gets called out to support, uh, especially like Saskatchewan, Alberta, British Columbia right now. Uh, this is a rotating task and it's ironically turning out to be one of these things where the like, disasters aren't just an environmental challenge or even an economic challenge. Like they are a national security challenge. And I know that word doesn't get thrown around a whole lot, especially in Canada, but like climate change is, drastically changing the landscape. Uh, the military's priority, first and foremost, is to protect Canadians here at home. So before we can look at going to the Philippines like we did several years ago and helping them recover or going to other countries, we have to have a capacity to respond to these massive challenges on our own doorstep uh, down the road. So, so the military really is essentially seeing that this is not the end. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about I mean, you sort of said it there in passing uh, where you said, you know, we didn't always have everything we needed or something along those lines. And you talked about humans over hardware. So so you, you exit the Canadian military, uh, but you've got this conviction, right? You've, you've got this belief at, at, at no matter maybe how focused it may have been at that time. You've got an understanding that tech and resources could better assist uh, the men and women that serve this country, as well as anybody involved in 
frontline or first response when it comes to emergency management or disaster management. So that's the premise when it comes to founding Pegasus imagery. How did, how did, how did you get started on the journey of, of realizing and then implementing artificial intelligence in the context of disaster management? Well, I'll frame it like this. Uh, I know there's a huge amount of buzzwords that can get thrown around like artificial intelligence and AI and machine learning and all these other things. What it comes down to is boots on the ground. What information do you need to start actually getting ahead? Stop playing defense when you look at wildfires. So we put thousands of firefighters in the woods. Okay, that kind of seems familiar. The whole process is being driven by a guy in a, essentially a plane overhead with a pair of binoculars and a radio. We would, that's completely insane. Like we have to change. We have, there's other tools out there, but this process is kind of stuck in the 1940s or 50s. We need to get ahead of that. So what we look at is whether it's AI and real-time fire mapping, which is a new uh, capability we're, we're now actually deploying here in Alberta. It's, it really just comes down to, if you need a paper map, you just need a paper map. And that's actually where we start every conversation. Um, like a good example, Ryan, for a bit of a tangent, um, we, uh, it, back in May, Parkland County had a, had a fire, the Tomahawk wildfire. They called us because they knew about us. We're a company in the region. And they said, hey, can you guys come out here and help? We, we sent the team out there. And the very first thing we asked them was, what do you need? Not what do we have or what, what can we deliver? Because we can show them, we can stream the video from the aircraft, from the drones, directly to their smartphone. And they're like, we don't have a TV. Like, that, fair. What, like, what do you need? Like, we need a paper map that shows where the fire is. Like, okay. How about if we showed you where the boundaries are? Like, um, that works. And then what about where all the hotspots are? So generally, nobody watches fires at night. It's too dangerous for manned aircraft to fly over. Uh, Visibility is too low with all the smoke and at night. So we essentially leave these large fires kind of unmonitored. Right? We make a plan when the sun goes down in the morning, uh, normally at first light, helicopters will go out and somebody will fly around and make a visual assessment. What happens though is that that costs hours and hours and you start multiplying that by the number of firefighters and aircraft and heavy equipment. They're all just sitting around waiting. They're all waiting for direction. It's not that you don't want to go to work, but can't make a plan. So the longer it takes to make that plan, that's the key problem that we're solving as a company is time. So, so to do that, Cole, is, uh, overnight fire monitoring for Parkland. Is this about is this more about more than uh, just drones, though? I mean, like the, the drones are one way to get up there and it allows you to fly safely over the fire at night and et cetera, et cetera. But but what happens then? Well, and you made a good point earlier. I was listening to you guys talk about, you know, how some people look at ve their vehicle as like their personality. Yeah. In a lot of ways, we kind of get the same thing. They're like, oh, it's the drone company. Not really. Right. Uh, we're a data and a sensor company. So we build drones because we have to in order to carry sensors that allow us to, one, actually safely fly beyond line of sight and cover data coverage at a large area. The real play for us as a company is, like commercially speaking, is information. And not like in a scary 1984 kind of way. Like we all need different types of information, whether that's after a big windstorm, the farmers would probably like to know how their crop is doing rather than, you know, once every six months, maybe a visual inspection from an adjuster. Information delivered cheaper, faster, and with higher detail. That's what we're doing as a, as a company.
Hmm. So ultimately, I mean, this is not just limit. I mean, I realize that I'm asking a lot of questions about wildfire just because, I mean, I think people across Canada uh, or certainly in Western Canada have, have been experiencing a lot of smoke in the air in the last number of weeks. And, and we've seen, I mean, Lytton is probably the, the, the most heartbreaking example of a community impacted. I mean, a community leveled, quite frankly, by wildfire. Uh, you know, talking to Albertans about wildfire, obviously, there are many, you know, scenarios, including uh, Slave Lake, Fort McMurray, that will resonate with people. But but there's probably more to this. Right. I mean, could, do you see Pegasus AI or tech being being uh, assisting uh, response here in, in a number of different disasters? Does does the technology translate or can you apply it anywhere, really? Yeah, and so this is the dichotomy that we find ourselves in, right? Like, our total addressable market is anything that has the atmosphere over it. So, and I'll give you a couple of easy examples. You look at wildfire, where do they happen generally? Kind of in the middle of nowhere. What else is out there? Well, for us to have a contract or scale up the operation to be able to cover that area and catch fires early as they're being formed from human or natural causes... We have to have the right, we have to be in the right time and space to, to detect that. The good news is what we found is there's also a lot of industry out there. So like uh, a lot of the energy sector assets, uh, utilities, roads, forestry, these assets are out there in these areas. And part of the opportunity for us is we can be out flying and doing regular uh, monitoring for like a right of way. But if we're detecting a wildfire, well, now we're in a position where we, weren't, we didn't have to have a specific mission to go out and do that. It's a network effect. And I know it might be a little bit confusing, but the market opportunity for us is huge. Uh, we, as a company, though, like the heart of it, we see wildfire as this existential problem. Like We probably don't look at greenhouse gas emissions and think wildfire is a way that we can look at reducing what our total greenhouse gas output as a country is. But here in Alberta, everybody focuses on the GHG emissions from the oil sands in the energy sector. When in reality, in 2019, the greenhouse gas emissions in Alberta were double what they were from the oil sands from wildfire. Is that so true? This is one of these massive challenges that have, oh, yep. Wow. That's and that was 2019. So this isn't just about like making people safer and smarter. Like, you know, as we're looking to scale this company up, uh, this is the, the this is the moonshot that most people kind of talk about. What do you want to What do you want this company to eventually turn into? We don't want it to turn into a defense contractor because that's the problem that we're trying to solve is bridging this gap really between like Lockheed Martin and Best Buy, where people think drones. They think, oh, I bought my grandson a drone. Okay, there's a use for them, but those aren't the drones you need to save a city. So, data at scale. That's really what we're looking at doing as a company and and having this essentially scale out do you see i mean our, our municipalities our provinces i mean is the federal government are, are you playing ball with them are you talking to them do you think that decision makers uh are seeing the value here in what you're offering i'll frame it like this yeah it's a it's a good question because I can't really give you an answer. Um, we've talked to a lot of people at the provincial and at the federal level for leadership. It's a no brainer. Uh, if you can do something cheaper and get a way better effect as in like detecting fires earlier, or if you can fly and inspect train tracks 
to make sure that you detect defects earlier before training derails. It's a no-brainer. The challenge that we're running into is that, especially for a lot of companies like startups, dealing with government, there's this gigantic kill zone dealing with them. Uh, you can starve outside the castle gates, so to speak. And probably an easy analogy is you look at what happened with COVID-19. Everybody right out of the gate positioned and said, we're with first responders, the people on the healthcare professionals on the front lines, we're with you. And then we said, what do you need first? Well, we need PPE. We need this. We need that. While in the background, everybody started working on vaccines, right? A lot of hard decisions were made along there. If you look at wildfire, we've known that this has been a problem forever, um, or at least for, say, like the last 50 or 60 years. Decision makers can buy in, but it's dealing, in government, it's, it's the machine. How can you get through that machine? Like we have letters, uh, like Mayor Aladdin Natu from Sturgeon County. She's written a letter to the red tape reduction minister on our behalf. And still, what we actually find ourselves in right now, Ryan, is we can't actually get a contract with the province of Alberta to do this type of work because of an internal contracting change. So all the contracts from last year just unilaterally got extended. So that's not just for what we do, but that's for you know fire suppressant, helicopter contracts. And they said, well, COVID, we have a, we're making a change. Mm. So what we're doing right now is we're finding like, we're not going to, we're not just going to sit and, and pout about it. What we found is like Sturgeon County, we've worked with them last, last fall, for example, doing flood mapping. So they had information and data. So over the winter, they could make a plan and be in position so that if there was flooding this year, how are they going to, how are they going to react to that and get ahead of the curve, become proactive uh, in the same way Parkland County called us. Uh, we went out there, we flew that fire the first night, the next morning we briefed them and we said, here's the fire boundary, which you've probably seen before, but here's 137 hotspots. And they're like, okay, that's a lot. That's a lot of information. Like, okay, here are the 12 that are within a hundred meters of a structure. Wow. So, oh, and by the way, at 3 a.m., the wind shifted. So your plan of putting 40 firefighters on the north side of the fire, redeploy those guys on the east side. Now, that was what they ended up doing. We didn't, like, we're not, we're just here to support. So, right? Cole, there's always going to be that. Error and omissions insurance and try and stick it. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, carry, carry good insurance. That's good advice yeah. for any business owner. So, but there's always going to yeah. be, is it like, I, I'm fascinated by conversations around, robotics and AI and, and I mean just it blows my mind every single time but um, you know the especially where there's that marriage of tech and humanity and when you talk about using AI to determine where you'll deploy the firefighters for example I mean do you ultimately this might be a dumb question but do you ultimately see a day where bigger drones with more capacity or or even pilotless uh, or, you know, or, or uh, choppers or whatever the case may be. I mean, can you take the humans out of wildland fire response, I guess is what I'm asking. Can your AI pick up on 137 hotspots and a dozen drones over the next 10 hours are going to go and put each one of them out based on an algorithm? I mean, am I thinking 50 years into the future here or is that in five The easy way to put this is, so there's a couple questions in there, Ryan. One, uh, AI is not a replacement for people. What technology can do is reduce a lot of the hands and feet skills that have to 
to be built, right? Uh, you don't have to now fly a plane manually. We have a computer that helps you do that more effectively for uh, understanding a really complex problem like you know, early leak detection. You have, like, people can't just sit there and watch a TV monitor for 24 hours a day and, and pick up those small details. AI is, good for, is perfect at that. You look at what the future of flight is. Like We have uh, autonomous air taxis in development. We have a whole number of different things coming through. Like the next 100 years of aviation is going to be autonomous. The funny part is all that has to really get sorted out in the next two. So as a data company, we're focused on drones with the platform to carry sensors, but we've been developing sensors now with a partnership with the government of Canada and our federal regulator, Transport Canada, that allows us to fly beyond line of sight safely. And to be fair, like I'm from the infantry. We're not going to make this overly complicated. We're going to find the most direct path to the safest regulatory approval that we can achieve. So our drones have essentially an airborne radar system that allows them to do exactly what a manned aircraft can do if they could see at night and have x-ray vision. Amazing. So that is part of what we do is it's just about capturing the data. And so it always comes back down to it. What information do people need and how can we get it to them as fast as possible? So the moonshot uh, as a company, it's like, the Amazon of on-demand information, instead of having a really expensive contracting process uh, where you have to hire a plane and a crew and then because it's a lot of money, now you have to go through the diligence process of an RFI, RFP, blah, blah, blah. What if you just, I need a package. You go on Amazon or, or the equivalent, and you order it and then it shows up. You don't care if the delivery driver had a clean driver's abstract. So in this case, that's what we're looking at doing is it's not just for wildfire, but that is the heart of the company. This is the this is our our higher calling, I guess. But you brought, you must have moments where I mean, like when you mentioned, uh, you know, you, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking like I wish I could remember what those things are called, the pump things, you know, that they used to use on the railway tracks, the guys that would pump the thing back and forth from like a, you know, and, and they'd like go ahead and like inspect the track and like it was looked to me to be like a lot of hard work, and then I'm sure that they've updated their practice to a certain degree now. But but when you talk about using that tech to, for example, um, quality check or, in, or ensure the uh, infrastructure, the stability of, of Canada's railway network, as an example, in, in preventing railway sk- uh, spills or, or accidents. I mean, imagine if you could have prevented Lac Megantique, as an example, or the spill at Lake Wabaman or, or a number of other disasters. Uh, what huge value there would be in that. When you mentioned that, I went, oh, yeah, I kind of had that moment where, you know, that wouldn't have been something I would have thought of. What a neat way to... You must have moments from time to time where all of a sudden you sit up in bed and you go, we could do that. What would be an example of something where, where even maybe you went, ah, you had that eureka moment of, of how Pegasus could, could assist in something or change the game and how we respond or react or get ahead of something. Well, there's a, there's a fairly recent one, Ryan. Um, we've coming from the military. I always believe that, and the rest of the team, we've always believed that first responders would want this information because that's what, like, we would have killed people seriously to have this type of technology overseas. Um, we thought first responders here on the front lines would want that. And then what we run into is that people don't really like to try stuff new uh, or make big changes. So we still want to make sure that the people on the front lines, the first responders filling sandbags or cutting fire guards, they have the information to be safer and smarter. Okay market readiness, 
are they really ready to change or try something new? No matter how many Fort McMurray's or Lytton's or like Grand Prairie's or high levels we have. Well, you know who does? Insurance companies, hmm. municipalities who are insured. And, you know, this year there's a, the province of Alberta has a $2.5 billion contingency fund. They're budgeting that we're probably likely to have on top of the normal budget, about $2.5 billion in disaster costs this year. And that budget came out in March before drought and everything else. So you look at, you know, the aha moments, if we are smarter and faster, uh, detecting for like leak detection for a right of way on a pipeline. What if we have the safest pipelines on the planet because we're constantly monitoring them with high quality data or we're the first people out there to find that missing hiker. Like you can go to Jasper national park. Okay. If you get lost, you have a four hour countdown and you're probably going to get found or somebody will be able to locate you. I mean, like the opportunities are pretty wild, but the insurance one is a recent one where, you know, insurance companies, like they are, they have, they have their own policy sometimes with bigger insurance companies. So Fort McMurray is somewhere north of $10 billion in disaster costs. And it's not resolved because they don't even have enough data on what happened. They to exercise their own insurance policy with the bigger com with the bigger insurance companies. This type of data would solve that challenge. So we're not all trying to figure out okay, what is this eventually all going to cost us. That's fascinating stuff, and and it, you know it is the truth, uh, whether whether we like it or not. That the that uh, you know sometimes for a lot of people, you know, we'll say that you know we, we can we can you know make fight wildland firefighting more safe for people or, or we, we can do this in a way that that's makes more and people go yeah, yeah yeah and then you go it can save us money and people go oh well then we should do it for a lot of people it's the bottom line conversation for a lot of people it's like what is the cost benefit analysis and when you can make that that's a powerful one uh cole rosentrader is the ceo of pegasus imagery you can learn more about what they're doing uh, by checking out their website, PegasusImagery.ca. That's where Sam pulled those really cool videos uh, and that CGI stuff, uh, or at least the mock-up stuff, based on on uh, what you do. Cole, thanks for laying it out for us. This is really neat. My 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 head is just I'm just coming up with all kinds of different ideas here. Really neat. Thanks for making time to talk to us. No, definitely. And uh, just for context, we've got 14 foot wide wings. So I mean, if you have a one of those 420 real pack stickers, uh, send some over our way. You put a real talk sticker on what? Yeah, you got it. Uh, we'll get that in the mail to you today, pal. Yeah, there's no problem with that. You got it. Thanks, Cole. Have a great awesome. rest of your week. Yeah, nice job. What an interesting story. That's fascinating. You know what? As soon as he was talking about uh, one of our uh, audience members, Mark Doran, who's actually been on the show before, uh, talking about Alberta's orphan wells, and Mark mm -hmm. does a ton of advocacy work on that. Mark was talking about how uh, air quality is affected from what he calls fugitive natural emissions year round. Yeah. Uh, and then in the summer from smoke as well. And then Mark went on to say these drones, these types, this type of tech can find fugitive gas emissions. And he, Mark says, people like me know that there are hundreds of thousands of sites in Alberta and they can prove that they exist. Heidi says, I have a friend who started as a, a wildland firefighter and is now a safety officer. This tech could be used in that field as well to assist safety officers and better assessing risk for communities this doesn't have a lot to do with this but but in a way i finally i was i'm like like five years behind everybody else but i finally watched 1917 this weekend mm. uh and a sam mendes film and 
first of all, wow. And uh, second of all, but it, you, you think of what a difference. I know that I'm Captain Obvious here, but you think of what a difference tech makes. Like the premise of the film is that these two British soldiers were sent on a nine kilometer journey to deliver a message to stop an, an ill-fated and doomed military advancement. And the, the risks that they take, I feel like I should even issue spoiler alerts, even for folks like me who are taking years and years to watch the film. But the risks that they take to deliver a handwritten letter with orders. And you think right now of how military operates <laughs> and uh, and how different that is and how tech. I mean, obviously, tech uh, can create more casualties. I mean, you think mm. of drone attacks, um, and, you know, state sanctioned drone attacks on communities, et cetera. Uh, I realize I'm opening cans every five seconds yeah. here, uh, but at the same time, how tech can also uh, protect lives and and ensure more safety of people. And I just think it's fascinating. And you said save money like that's <laughs> that's that's what a lot of people that's that's the number one thing that a lot of people care about, whether they'd say it out loud or not. The other thing, I mean, we were, he was talking about. I just wanted to do a quick fact check. Um, he was mentioning the, the how greenhouse gas emissions actually happen during Canadian wild, wildfires. Or any wildfire anywhere in the world, to be frank. Um, at Fort McMurray, when the Fort McMurray hap, uh, fire happened, it released the equivalent of roughly 5% of Canada's annual greenhouse gas emissions. And Wow. Yeah. So a, a lot. And, uh, and Although then, I guess maybe that shouldn't be surprising. When you when you try to you try to wrap your mind around the size of those fires yeah. and the amount of I'm not a scientist. I don't want to start using phrases and I'm going to back myself into a corner and sound like a fool. But um, if you think of the size of the burn and the you know, the, these sort of carbon, the, the, just this release, maybe yeah. it shouldn't be a surprise. No, it shouldn't be a surprise, but I guess it's it's it still is. <laughs> I'm it surprised. Is five per- I was too. when he said that. Yeah. So so what did he say? And he said that he said that the wildfire, the annual uh, you know, the emissions, I mean, the, 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 the sort of the uh, cumulative emissions from wildfire is double in Canada is double the oil sands when it comes to environmental impact. And I can't fact check that that number specifically, yeah. but I can tell you that the emissions are happening through wildfire. Um, yeah, the exact number. I mean, to me, it's both are bad. <laughs> both we should both try we should try to curb both it's not one or the other um so to me it's both are bad yeah (laughs) and then we'll hear from people that'll say that uh i mean i'm not talking about wildfires near communities obviously to be clear um but there are a lot of people that you know we should let them burn a lot of people are saying that we need more wildfire as a matter of fact a lot of people are talking about indigenous wisdom for for many many centuries before uh, you know, sort of let let's say, uh, you know, how we would have approached extinguishing wildfire and well, forest management. So it's part of the forest management cycle. But 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 there's a long and storied history, yes. a cultural history yeah. to it, right? You know, I mean, this is something that that maybe I mean, how much does the average person know about this? Yeah, I'm not super well versed on the indigenous angle, but like, you know, through scientific data for centuries and centuries and centuries that healthy forest ecosystems need to burn once in a while. Yeah. You know, trees are a a massive store of carbon. And yes, it does release a bunch of it, but it's also it's an ecosystem that left by itself 
goes through a carbon cycle and yeah. is sort of self-fulfilling. The problem is, A, we've been putting out fires and letting places get more tinder dry and more unchecked. And then when we have a fire, they're big ones. And and B, we've been building settlements. And C, we've been polluting the planet in other ways, which has been heating it up, which has been making the fires worse. Which is why Jeff Bezos is brilliant. He's right. We need to take all of our garbage and blast it off into space. Including Jeff Bezos? Including Jeff <laughs> I was going to roll hot into advertising right now, but I'll just take a second. Just to take let it. Just take a simmer. pause. Just take a minute to let that land. Oh, seems like a lot of people, by the way, in the live chat were big fans of 1917. I was embarrassed. Like when I was six minutes in or seven minutes in, I was like, why did I wait so long to watch this movie? It's amazing. And I was home by myself. So I had the volume. I had that subwoofer just shaking the glass. That's how you need to watch films like that. How is Monroe with that? The dog was he like, "What's uh, no, going she, on?" She, Monroe's Monroe's. Uh, she's not. Uh, she doesn't like storms okay. outside. That's her thing. That's her trigger. She doesn't love storms, and she gets a little sort of uh, edgy, squirrely. If I said that word in front of her, she'd really go bananas. <laughs> uh, no, but she was she was right there with me for the film. Cool. Yeah, she was all over it. Um, we want to remind you that I know that, you know, when it, when it comes to this past year and a half and, and some of our, I don't know, our tendencies uh, with regards to how we learn, people have made huge, huge adjustments, right? I mean, you know, from, from kindergarten kids all the way up to the high schoolers, university students, and then even those of us participating in continuing education, the pandemic has meant that almost everybody's gone online. Uh, but back to school this fall it's not just for the kids either it, it could be back to school for you as well and I know that many of us are fatigued let's be honest from all the screen time right from being in front of computers for like 18 months in a row so you've taken the opportunity to get outside and explore and remember what it's like to breathe that air to get out into the great outdoors well when you're thinking of what your quote unquote new normal is consider now your newly acquired skills and that familiarity you've developed when it comes to getting online. So you may have had a digital experience with learning last year. Uh, Athabasca University, Athabasca U is well positioned to handle that extra traffic. It truly is an online university. So the delivery method with Athabasca U wasn't temporary or rushed or just sort of barely meeting the needs. They didn't have to scramble is what I'm saying. It's what they do every day and it's what they'll continue to do even when other aspects of our lives go back to in-person, your schooling doesn't have to. You can learn more about going back to school, whatever that means for you, by visiting AthabascaU.ca. Also, a big shout out to the team at Campers Village. Speaking of getting outside, if you need to gear up, there is no better source than what Canadians have trusted, and in particular, Albertans, for decades the family-owned campers village with two locations in edmonton one in calgary and always open online at campers-village.com where nearly every order over 49 bucks ships for free whether you're traveling with your family a road trip maybe you're paddling maybe you're climbing maybe it's car camping or backcountry camping or maybe you're getting ready for a big snowshoe adventure this winter gear up with the team at campers village they carry the finest most trusted brands and they're proud of the customer service they've provided for many many years again campers-village.com or follow the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com 
Well, it kind of works out perfectly with our next story. When it comes to getting outside, if, if you've managed to get yourself out to Banff National Park in the last while, you may, may have been lucky enough to see a relatively new addition. You probably know that bison were officially extinct out of Banff National Park before 1885. That's when the park was first founded. So as a national park, it never housed bison. The Wild Plains bison gone from that area for 140 years or so. But about four years ago, a new program took hold. Bison from Elk Island National Park, just east of Edmonton, were introduced. And on July 29th of 2018, Parks Canada released 31 bison into Banff National Park. Well, the story continues to grow in more ways than one. And it's a real pleasure to welcome to the program Karsten Hoyer who's been serving with Parks Canada as a warden for more than 25 years. Today, he leads the Banff National Park reintroduction program, uh, which is being declared a real success. Carson, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thanks for joining us on Real Talk. Good morning, Ryan. Thanks for having me. This is a really, really neat story. Uh, I don't even really know where to start. I think, I, to be honest, I want to I wanna rewind about 150 years if, if you'd humor us. Can you talk to us about what we know about the history of bison in the area before that extinction? Yeah, I mean, bison existed in, the estimates are 30 to 60 million animals across the Great Plains and into the foothills and into the mountains across Western North America back in the 1700s up to the late 1800s. And then a combined series of pressures, if you will, uh, led to their extinction, and 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 those were everything from very overt uh, uh, hunting to try and exterminate bison to then uh, force indigenous people onto reserves, so taking their mainstay food and clothing source away. Uh, so almost as a item of war, or method of war, if you will, to their hides were really valuable for the belting. Uh, in industrial plants in 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 Europe, and so the, during the Industrial Revolution, the hides became uh, a huge uh, pressure point for bison being killed off as well. And then the advance of the railway and settlers, and literally for sport outside of the train, sometimes hundreds of bison would be felled, and their meat wasting on the landscape. And then their bones finally were collected for fertilizers. So there was all these series of oppressive forces that led to their overall extinction, which is, you know, really hard to fathom 30 to 60 million animals reduced down to just a few hundred. And fortunately, amongst those just a few hundred, a few dozen ended up in Elk Island back in 1907. And so those are original animals with original genetics from North America. And it was that source of animals that remains at Elk Island that now has become the seed stock, if you will, for reintroductions throughout the world, everywhere from Siberia to Banff National Park. Uh, Carson, I promise that this uh, comparison will make sense, or at least I hope it will. But but if you talk to anybody that's into classic cars, uh, the one thing that someone will say, if they're very proud of the classic car, and typically it's to justify an appraised value, They'll say the numbers match. In other words, this is the original motor that was in it. This is the original transmission that was in it. I didn't have something built from Tennessee and shipped up here and dropped in. This is original. How important is it to you that the 
bison from Elk Island and now in Banff National Park are descendants with that original genetic makeup or the original genes out of the, the, the Plains bison that, of course, habited in the millions, as you said, a couple of centuries ago. You know, that original genetic seed stock is really important because it's it's where the knowledge, both the physical knowledge and the mental knowledge and the cultural knowledge for these animals reside is in that DNA for how to survive in landscapes like the like this, like the ones we've re- reintroduced them into. And we see that innate uh, knowledge uh, coming out in these animals over the last four years of as we've reintroduced them into the mountains and we kind of thought, oh, geez, are they going to know how to climb steep slopes? I mean, they've been in Elk Island for the last uh, several uh, decades, you know, which is relatively flat. Are they going to know how to cross wild rivers? Uh, For instance, there's no flowing water in Elk Island. Well, these guys pretty much learned and knew how to do all those things immediately. And they are now, particularly in summer, they are occupying habitat in the mountains that's, I think, in our minds, more akin to sheep and mountain goat habitat. I mean, they're up high feeding on that really nutritious vegetation that that follows as the snow line recedes. It's kind of like, you know, those first sprigs of fresh spinach that are tender in your garden, rather than the bolted stuff in late summer that's tough and bitter. That's what these bisons are keying into right now as we're chatting. And it's partly because of that genetic knowledge, that genetic memory, they were never diluted due to to cattle genes intergressing into their genetic makeup. These are the real thing. And I think that's really showing now that, that, that they can pull on that archaic knowledge of their ancestors. And one cool thing that's also happening, Ryan, is these bison are actually reactivating old wallows. So these wallows are where bison roll and shed their fur and cake on the dust and the dirt to, uh, you know, uh, uh, satisfy that itch that they have from insects. And it's also a way that they transmit their scent and, and particularly the bulls and ret sort of display to the females, how powerful they are and smelly. And <laughs> anyway, these bison now in Banff are actually reactivating old wallows of their ancestors from hundreds of years ago before they went extinct. And sometimes they're even uh, unearthing as they reactivate these wallows and get the soil churning again, they're unearthing their ancestors' bones, which we sometimes take a little sample and send off for radiocarbon dating and come back anywhere from just a few hundred years old to 2,700 years old. Wow. So it's, it almost sends shivers up and down your spine when you realize that there's this ancestral genetic knowledge and this ancestral story in the landscape. And these modern day bison are immediately connecting with that, those old storied places of their ancestors and helping us see how they always occupy these places and they always belonged here. I've I've been lucky enough to get uh, obviously not in the wild. I want to be clear about this, but I I, I did a, a feature story uh, uh, for a television station with a bison rancher, and so in a controlled circumstance, I was able to get very up close and personal. As a matter of fact, to feed them from the bed of a pickup truck, 
Uh, and then my cousin John actually keeps a bison on his property in a pen. So we're able to get real close to it. He, I mean, he, he stands on its back and they have quite a bond together. Uh, not recommended with wild bison, obviously. Um, but there's something I'm not saying anything profound to you, a park warden. I'll tell you, I, I'm aware of that. But there is something about these animals. I mean, they are absolutely magnificent. It's it's almost being close to a bison. It's almost like being close to an elephant. It, it's like a spiritual experience. Um, can you just try to use words to explain to us what it's like uh, to, to, to be monitoring their progress? I mean, my understanding is that they're, they're reproducing. Now, you have calves out there. That's got to be an indicator of, of a healthy scenario. Yeah, for sure. We, we started in 2018. So uh, three years ago in the summer, we released 31 bison, uh, of which uh, pretty much half of those had already been born in a pen where we kept the original founder calves for the first year and a half. So those 31 bison now, a couple of years later, have, have expanded and reproduced to, we figure we have about 66 animals. So yeah, incredibly healthy, robust, adapting super well. And, you know, for me, just to kind of touch on that, like, what are they like up close and how does it feel to see them? I was a little bit concerned because, you know, much of my career was in the backcountry in Banff. And, and I wasn't quite sure how these animals that had never been there in my short lifetime would actually look and feel in that landscape. And I, I remember when we first brought them in, I, I came down the hill and even in the pen where they were for the first one and a half years before we released them into the wild, just seeing their, their, their tawny backs in the willows uh, poking above the top of the willows, it immediately felt to me like, yeah, these these things belong. They, they, they've always been here. They're natural on the landscape. And now to see them learning this landscape so quickly, quickly and, and reactivating their old trails and their old wallows and following that, that snow line and the palatable vegetation. And we know that they've been visited by wolves, which they're not subject to in Elk Island. And they're, they're, their movements are not, you know, they're not being chased away. They're not, they kind of stand up to the wolves. doesn't seem like there are any big chases that have unfolded to date. They're interacting and grazing in the same meadow systems with grizzly bears. And they've just adapted incredibly well. And, and, and yet they see, never cease to amaze me. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, for instance, we were uh, trying to herd them out of an area where we're trying to not have them expand just yet. Mm. And we suspected that they would go down the valley and turn the corner around a mountain. And as we started to put on the gentle pressure of our presence to herd them out of this area, they turned right and went right over this mountain. And I was completely blown away. And at first I was like, they're not going to, oh, they are, they're going right up and over the top. And uh, yeah, like I've been working with them quite closely for six years now. And even just last week, they never ceased to amaze me. They're amazing animals. You've got amazingly to have, well. I, I don't say that. I, I don't even know. I mean, I've maybe said this twice in the history of the show. I, you've, you've got one of the coolest jobs I've ever heard of. I mean, I can't even imagine 
uh, I can't even imagine doing what you do. And there's, there's got to be some real intuition, too. You, you touched on a couple of things. I, I, I hope you're not in a real rush because I have so many questions for you. But you talked about wolves and grizzlies, and this might be a bit of a naive question, but um, I mean, cougars for that matter, too. I, I, I would imagine I don't think there's grizzly bears in Elk Island National Park. If there were, I think they'd be pretty far from home. Um, but you wouldn't intervene, would you? I mean, like, I mean, I recognize they're big animals. Grizzlies are pretty bold, too. Uh, if there were to be an interaction, and, a, and an adolescent hungry male grizzly were to go after a bison calf, uh, do, do, does the park warden or do park staff intervene or does that's nature? Yeah, no, our, our intent from the beginning, Ryan, has been not just to reintroduce bison to the landscape, but to reintroduce their ecological role. Yeah. So, like That's the bigger piece of the puzzle that's gone missing here that we're interested in restoring. And so their role as a potential food source for grizzlies, for, for wolves, their role as a dominant primary grazer and keeping those grasses grazed and healthy and their roots vibrant, those are all, you know, their role as, as, as wallowers and developing these uh, little depressions that then get occupied and filled with water and then maybe become you know, temporary little uh, breeding habitat for amphibians. Those are the actual ecological relationships that come with animal that prompted our interest in, in national parks because, you know, one of our primary mandates is to maintain and restore the what we call the ecological integrity, which really is just the health of the ecosystem and to, to, to preserve that, to conserve that and to maintain it and to restore it. You need to restore the component parts. And one of the component parts that was missing in Banff and continues to miss be missing in a lot of other places is, is the bison. And that was our motivation and impetus for reintroducing it. You mentioned that when they were first transported into Banff National Park that they were penned uh, for a while. Uh, wh- what was the thought behind that? And how did you determine or how did the team determine that they were ready to roam? Yeah, no, good question. We, you know, there's two ways you can do reintroduce animals, really. You can do what's called a hard release. So that's literally where you, you, you put them in a truck, you know, as we did from Elk Island, and then you back the truck up to the new place, Banff National Park, and you open the back of the truck and the animals run out and you cross your fingers that they're going to stick around. Well, a lot of the time that does not work so well. And given the investment and time and effort and and our desire for success um, in this project, we decided to invest a little bit more and to hold them so that they would calve twice and actually anchor to the area in the backcountry and develop a bit of a relationship with it before we released them so that that homing instant to go right back to Elk Island hopefully would be um, lessened by the relationship that they had developed with this particular part of the backcountry of Banff National Park. And today, you know, we did a few other things, like I mentioned earlier, we, we, we heard them a little bit when they're reaching the periphery of their massive reintroduction zone. And we're trying to kind of teach them to bond to this target area, if you will. We've got a few little drift fences and a, some few key pinch points um, that again, redirects them if they, if they venture towards those areas. And I think collectively this whole tool set is helping us to make, I guess, our uh, desire 
because we can't have bison roaming throughout Alberta, unfortunately, at this stage anyway. And so we have to have a target reintroduction zone from which we start this program and, and, and this tool set has enabled us to do that, including holding them for one and a half years in a backcountry pen before releasing them. Karsten, how, how much is, is Parks Canada, would you say, paying attention to this in the context of potential uh, reintroduction in other national parks? Yeah, I think uh, quite a bit, um, but each park has a unique set of circumstances. And it was really interesting, even during the consultation phases in the in the lead up to us doing this here, you know, there was a lot of tentativeness and hesitancy on the part of different stakeholders and the public in general. And, and I can completely understand that because, you know, um, nobody because these bison have been missing for 140 years so nobody in their lifetime currently has ever had the experience of living with wild bison and i think you know we as humans we tend to fear the unknown we kind of often assume the worst and so there was a lot of concern that you know you would release these bison and before you know it they would escape and they'd be rampaging through ranchers fences way to the east and maybe even like going down the main street of of some of the small towns and crushing cars, you know, like those, but now by starting small and starting in a remote area and starting just these initial four years has helped people develop those comfort levels where we can start maybe to talk about uh, doing something similar in other places or expanding this program. I mean, those are all big hanging questions yeah. that are out there right now. But there are other groups like a lot of Indigenous nations who are taking it upon themselves to, because obviously, you know, there's a huge cultural connection yeah. for so many Plains tribes. And so, for instance, down in, in, in the Waterton area, outside of Waterton, both to the south in the U.S., uh, but also to the east on the Kenai or the Blood Reserve, you know, they are under undertaking repatri or rematriation reintroduction programs with bison themselves. And who knows, maybe one day some of those might spread to a landscape like Waterton. Yeah, that'd be incredible. I, I, it's one of my next questions. I want to just go there now. I, I wanted to ask you if, if you see this almost uh, maybe if not the driving force or, or the original impetus, but do you see this in a way as an as an angle on reconciliation? Oh, it's huge. Like yeah. the, the amount of uh, enthusiasm there's been for the Banff project and inclusion of, of, of Indigenous nations. You know, they, they helped us at the beginning phases with a lot of the design around the project. And, you know, they've, uh, we've, we've helped them facilitate a number of blessing ceremonies to kind of spiritually prepare these particular bison from Elk Island to want to stay in a place like Banff once we relocated them here and reintroduced them. And, uh, you know, I, I don't doubt for a second, I mean, I'm trained as a Western scientist, but I don't doubt for a second that those are really important things that needed to be done that, you know, in Parks Canada, we, we failed to do that in other places in the past. Uh, you know, we're trying to learn from those mistakes and that kind of inclusion about the spiritual preparation, not just the physical, biophysical preparation for these animals to come to a new landscape and feel like it's home. I think those were, are largely responsible for the success that we've seen so far. 
I think it's just a, a remarkable story. Have you faced any blowback? Has there been has it been perceived as controversial by anybody, or have there been challenges along the way? Oh, I'd say minor ones. Um, and I think, again, you know, we were dealing with uh, in a lot of a lot of our consultations with the the, the ranching uh, community to the east of Banff National Park. You know, we're we're kind of blessed with a, an area where. There's a 20 to 50 kilometer buffer between Banff National Park and where the first private ranches are. But nonetheless, you know, there were some initial fears that the bison would head east straight away and onto those landscape and potentially mix with with cows and wreck fences. That hasn't happened. Um, and and in one case, actually, it did. Ha- we did have a bull venture that far east in initial stages that he was just kind of determined to leave. And we had to make the very difficult decision to put him down um, as he was getting away on that landscape. And I think as difficult as that decision was and as sad as it was, I think that bought us a lot of credibility with the ranching community because we had basically committed to doing that at the beginning stages of the project. And we followed through when it was, you know, emerging as a reality and, 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 and despite the the, the public blowback that we received that over that over the short term. But I think the ranch community said, okay, these guys made some commitments and they held to them and, and, and that's bought us quite a bit of respect. Hmm. James says, this is, it sounds to me like when they uh, reintroduced wolves uh, to Yellowstone down in the States, it says it balanced out the ecosystem. Is there a bit of a parallel there? Yeah, no, I, I think so. I actually just recently read the book written by the project manager there about that whole process a, a decade later. And I mean, the scale of that was larger for sure. It's, it's it's amazing to me how that happened. I think the cultural impediments and challenges that they had to overcome to pull that off were even greater uh, than the ones that we uh, have with with bison in our landscape, Karsten. So you mean me, you mean because they were they're apex predators? Is that why you mean? Yeah, and I mean they're they're direct predators on things like cattle and right. and so on, and and that's 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 unfolded as such, and they figured out compensation programs. But it's you know the the bumps along the way of that program have been larger and more challenging. So cool. I'm, I'm so grateful that you joined us. Is there a chance that, that uh, you know, audience members of ours that are getting out into the backcountry, I'm going to be out there later this summer in Banff National Park. We get out there every single summer. Um, is there a chance that people may come across this herd or would it be very unlikely based on where they are? Well, there, there, well, first of all, to answer your question, yes. And we do have people who are hiking and on horseback who are encountering these animals. Uh, which is great and it you know we we just ask the people when they do they they treat them like any other wildlife in Banff National Park and that they don't pursue them they give them their distance we recommend 100 meters or more you know get close with a telephoto lens and binoculars not with your physical body and just afford them the the respect uh, that they deserve they're they're quite nervous around people their their tendency would be to flee uh, more than anything else but you know, in doing so, you're kind of displacing them. So again, uh, try to let's try and coexist with all wildlife, bison included. But it is a remote part of the park, so you know it's it's a small number of people that encounter them, and it takes uh, pretty much two days from the nearest motor accessible trailhead to get into the heart of the reintroduction zone. 
Uh, so it's pretty remote area, but it's pretty rewarding. A, to just visit that area and see all the bison sign is one thing, but to actually get a visual glimpse of the animals, it, it, it's pretty wonderful. Oh, I would have chills up and down my spine. I, I To be quite honest with you, whether it's a, a pristine, uh, you know, alpine fishing lake or spotting bison or a grizzly sow and two cubs or whatever. Um, I like those ones where you got to kind of earn the right to see it. That's pretty special yeah. stuff. Uh, Karsten Hoyer, uh, officially uh, the coolest job of anybody we've talked to this month, the bison reintroduction manager uh, with Parks Canada. Thanks so much for giving us your time and, and uh, painting just an amazing picture today. We appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking interest in this story. Yeah, See you later. bet. Uh, so cool. <laughs> Isn't that so cool? Yeah. I remember I interviewed a guy uh, just as a before I start talking about, you know, getting close to bison when you're up close and personal and this, that and the other. I try to be very clear mm. talking about controlled circumstances. <laughs> These are, you know, but uh, I interviewed a guy a few years ago who was out with his girlfriend at Elk Island National Park. He was out for a jog in the morning and he came across a bison and um, hit his version of the story, which I had no reason to not believe, uh, was that he did everything he could to get out of the way. He he was doing his best, but this was just, it was an aggressive bull and mm-hmm. it came at him and it got his horn right into his ass cheek and sent him, like it, it dug in and then sent him. And this guy flew. Uh, he was actually lucky to survive. He, he, yeah. The guy's got a great, I didn't see the injury, Um but he told me, I, I said, like, how deep was it? Like, do you have a, and he, do you get ripped a new one? Yeah, Is that he, what you're trying to say? Yeah, he literally got ripped a new one. Yeah. And it was it was quite a serious injury, actually. Uh, but he, he was like, if you're going to get gored by a bison, that's pretty much, if you could pick anywhere on your body, that's pretty much where you want to get gored. Because it's fleshy? Yeah. It's fle- like, where else you, like, if, if it's in there three or four inches, like, where else do you want that on your body? I don't think, I think ass cheek is probably choice number one. <laughs> I can't think of the word you want in your ear, your stomach, your chest. No, your those would thi- all be fatal. Your, your thigh. I mean, it would be fatal. Yeah. Even exactly. your thigh, because you could get the, that big, massive vein that goes down in your thigh. Oh, the cor- is it, it the been, carotid? No. Uh, it could have been. Well, I mean, once we start talking actual things you learn in school, I'm going to forget everything and have no idea. But uh, <laughs> just a magnificent animal. I, I picture these. and And it's not like. They didn't they didn't bring them from they didn't like, you know, you know, raise them out of their like Petri dish, artificial insemination. They raised them in somebody's backyard and then they turned them loose in Banff National Park and and the wolves and grizzlies are just licking their chops. These are animals that were in Elk Island already. But yeah, not they're not encountering those same predators. I mean, what what a if only bison could talk. If they could, Hoyles, I know you'd get an exclusive. I, I tried. I really tried to get a talk. We go now bison. to the herd leader. <laughs> we go to the vice president of communications for the Banff National Park bison herd. But isn't that Harry? A- <laughs> what's your thought on the Harry the bison? I was yeah. wondering what his name was. Yeah, Thank well, you thought- for clearing that up. On short notice, uh, I thought Harry was the appropriate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, I just think that's so neat. So cool. Um, if you have a, a story that's uh, capturing your attention or something that you'd love to learn more about, uh, we would love to hear from you to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Uh, of course, Real Talkers are helping us right now, letting us know James, the Watcher, and others. We're talking about the femoral artery, I believe. We'll take their word for that on that one. But yeah, let's just say 
it, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to sit here and think. Someone says, "Well, what about your arms? Your arms? You want to get a, a, a bison four inches into your arm? You guys nuts? What are you talking about here?" Craig says, "If I was an animal, I would be a bison." Okay. Okay. Sarah's telling me to move on to the question of the week. Well, no, because in the question of the week, we talked about what animal would you be if oh, you were yeah. an yeah, animal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. But we don't have time for that today, so we'll do the question of the week tomorrow because we have a major thing this to talk true. about okay, right, you're right now. You're right, you're right, you're right. That's why you're the host. We're getting ready to give away like a $15,000 solar installation. This is amazing. First, first things first, let me remind you that the team at Kubi Energy, based out of Edmonton and Kamloops, BC, is doing solar installations right now, and for that matter, year-round, across Western Canada, helping people at their cabins, cottages, main residences, their businesses, industrial applications. I mean, they do tiny little installs all the way up to massive ones. Like big ones for like post-secondaries and conference centers and office towers. Kubi is helping organizations and individuals achieve their sustainability solutions. Getting as close to net zero as humanly possible on clean energy. You can learn more online at kubienergy.ca for a quote, for frequently asked questions, or for anything you'd like to learn about going solar. Every Monday, the team at Kubi Energy gets our week started off right with a feature that we call Positive Reflections. Now, here's the deal. This week's Positive Reflections is a little bit different. Typically, we look into our email inbox. We check our Twitter account at RealTalkRJ. We look for the inspiring stories that you've told us. And we, re, you know, we bring them to you to say, here's what's made the day. Here's a random act of kindness that changed a Real Talker's week. This week, a little bit different. We've narrowed down our submissions for the Real Talk Net Zero Solar Contest presented by Kubi Energy. Thank you to everybody who sent us your story. Thank you to everybody over the past couple of weeks that entered, that told us your solar story, or most frequently, a story about somebody else that you believed deserved this free, no-strings-attached solar install. We've narrowed it down to our top three in consultation with the team at Kubi Energy and via our question of the week presented by our official research and strategy partners at Y Station. It's now over to you, Real Talkers. That's right. You have one full week to help us determine the winner of our net zero solar contest. So I want to direct you to ryanjesperson.com. Right at the top of the page, you'll see our question of the week. This is where you click, okay? And in partnership with Y Station, we're asking you to weigh in on important topics. Now this week, we're talking solar. So you're going to help us determine the winner, but we also want to know how you feel about it. Are you going green as a family? What does that look like? If not, what are the barriers? Where's your understanding about where solar's at, capability-wise and otherwise? Once you get through the first few questions, you'll wind up at our top three finalists. And it's my pleasure to introduce you to them right now. The first of our top three in no particular order is the Winifred Stewart Society. If you know sports, if you know humanity, 
If you know absolute legends, you know exactly who Joey Moss is. May he rest in peace. Joey Moss's legacy of kindness and impact to Edmonton should never be forgotten. Joey's home has west and south-facing roof pitches. It's a perfect fit, says the nominee, for solar power creation. Joey's home takes wonderful care of the most vulnerable clients of the Winifred Stewart Society. Since 1953, this great local organization has been a very bright light. You see what they did there? In the metro area, helping so many people. It would be an incredible high-profile location to feature solar energy and how it can impact nonprofits. There are so many reasons, said this nominator, that this project should go to Joey's house. That's number one. Finalist number two, Carol and Liz. Now, this was someone, Susan and her husband submitted this, said, hey, listen, we already live in a net zero energy home, so we don't need solar panels, but we have two very deserving friends who would love this. Our friends Carol and Liz, their twins, have both been hardworking registered nurses in Edmonton for more than 40 years. They've given so much in their careers to help the rest of us stay healthy. Carol was a nurse educator at the Cross Cancer Institute. Her twin sister Liz worked at the Royal Alexandra Hospital. They both retired in 2019, just months before the onset of the pandemic. But with the worsening of COVID-19, they both decided to continue working on contract to assist with the hotline and with COVID screening. Now, as the urgency of the pandemic seems to be waning, they're preparing to enjoy their well-deserved retirement. They've seen our solar install, says Susan and her husband, and they've been very interested in adding solar to their lovely post-war home. But there's a lot of upfront costs to consider as retirees. Says their nominator, my wife and I couldn't think of two more deserving people to receive this glorious prize. These two dear friends have given so many for so many years. We would love to see them receive it. That's our second finalist. And here's our third. The Kindles have written in. What an exciting opportunity, they say. Mike and Lori here from Devon, Alberta. Our town was founded during Alberta's oil discovery days. Lately, we've been taking on more and more green energy alternatives. Our community center has solar panels, there's recycling programs, and plastic one-time use bags are forbidden. We own a rechargeable scooter for zipping around town. Lori says the economic crash saw my engineer husband now driving a school bus and working at Timmy's. My salon had to rebuild. After three lockdowns, life's been difficult. Net zero for us would be life-changing. It could mean the difference of us not losing our home. We're very frugal. We grow our food in a community garden plot. Lori says, I'm a top Google local guide. I'm a social media influencer. And through the pandemic, I've been spreading cheer and goodwill with sidewalk chalk street art. I've been featured on the news, including the national news. People make our driveway part of their daily dog walks and bike trips. The solar panels will get a lot of attention. She says, I've submitted a few photos of Mike tanking up our car with unicorn farts. I'm getting a swift kit in the butt by Granny for relying on non-renewables. Says Mike and Lori, thank you for your consideration. You can see their chalk art. It's absolutely remarkable. The Kindles are our third finalist of three. When you click next, you'll see the screen where we ask you to make a difficult decision. Which finalist will you choose? The Winifred Stewart Society, Carol and Liz, or the Kindles? 
You have until Sunday night to cast your vote. We'd love for you to do it today or as soon as possible. Thank you to the team at Kubi Energy for making this possible. And thank you to everybody who submitted an entry in one of the favorite contests I've ever been a part of. Next week, at this time, we'll find out who's won that solar install, who's won free, clean energy for the next 30 years. Make it a great week, Real Talkers, and we'll see you tomorrow.